listening to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for, I don't know the day, it's early October. Welcome to October. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Magic the Gathering. Uh, hi there, my name is Rob Harvey. I post on Quarter to Three as Chaplain, and my game of the week is not World of Warcraft, the miniature game. <laughs> Hello, everybody. My name is Scott Lufkin, and I post on Quarter 3 as Bleed the Freak, and my game of the week is not Guardians, Agents of Justice. That's so sad. Wait, which one is that? What is that, That's, Scott? That they never came out. That was the thing that I was excited about for probably f- five years straight. So it was supposed to be like a kind of an XCOM meets yeah. superheroes kind Simtex, of thing. Simtex, wasn't it? Wasn't it the first Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. so. I think so. I was really excited about it. I read everything I could about it, and then all of a sudden it just poof. One of one of those famous instances of, of us video gamers getting our hearts broken, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah I never got over it. Uh, well, to help you get over it this week, we have a topic. Scott, I know this is close to you. Rob, I know you are enjoying some of these games as well. We have an overarching topic uh, that is based on a few games we've all been playing lately, and the basic concept that unites these games is a character that you play represented as a deck of cards. Now, a lot of us play RPGs, a lot of us play card deck building games or CCGs. Um, these are games that have in various clever ways combined that concept. And they bring a little of the chaos of dealing a deck of cards with the randomness of die rolls and this concept of, of building a character with unique powers or maybe gear. Uh, so we've got three games that we would like to talk about and we will be bringing in special guests to discuss each of them uh, that use this concept. So to kick it off, uh, I think the first instance of this that I saw of these three games was at a Penny Arcade a few years ago. Uh, a new developer named Blue Manchu it was creating a game called Card Hunter. Now, uh, Scott, you wrote for us a, a week-long series about Card Hunter when it launched. It, it came out of beta, I think, two weeks ago. It was officially launched. It's free to play. Uh, Scott, one of the things that I know through the magic of time travel is that John Che... The designer of uh, Card Hunter is about to talk to us on this podcast about the twin challenges he had of making this game appeal to RPG fans and to deck building card CCG players. Uh, I am guessing that you came to this more as an RPG fan. Is that correct, Scott? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, it, it's really more of a. For me, it's primarily a single player game. Although I, I know that's not going to be the case for everybody, um, which is kind of the beauty of the design. Uh, but yeah, it definitely does have a robust single player piece. And I know where that appeals to you because you've, uh, you and I have talked about this before. You've written about it on, on the site. Uh, I presume you have a, a long history with. I guess what are called SRPGs. Uh, explain what that means and what are some examples of that. <clears throat> well, uh, SRPG would be like a strategy RPG, uh, something like a Final Fantasy Tactics, um, Tactics Ogre more recently on the 3DS. Um, these games tend to be, well, they seem to always be like an isometric view. They probably don't have to be, but it seems like my favorite ones always are. Um, kind of a kind of a half top down view. You control 
multiple units, turn-based. You're facing off on a kind of a nice-looking, sometimes hex or sometimes square-based grid map, um, usually with height maps, and then you're facing off against an enemy um, of um, approximate forces, maybe maybe stronger forces than your own, turn-based battling. Uh, you get sword and sorcery spells, whatever, and then you kind of um, move through a story that pushes you from battle to battle. What, what strikes me about these SRPGs, Scott, and where, where they work for me, um, it almost taps into what I enjoyed about XCOM in that it creates a narrative mainly around this tactical combat. Mm. Uh, and unlike a lot of JRPGs or just straight-up RPGs, uh, it really appeals to that, that tactical combat and all the story bits in between – not to say they're irrelevant, but they're kind of minimized. Uh, yeah. they, there's no crazy spill, spell trees, or there, well, there's there's no crazy uh, dialogue trees, or you're not having to like explore necessarily. It's just sort of like tactical combat story beat, tactical combat story beat. It's kind of for people who like RPGs for the tactical challenge of them. Um, right. It, it's almost kind of like a combat simulator, really. Yeah, like, it's yeah. just kind of a fun... Uh, yeah, a lot of my favorite games, I like the stories in them, but I could I could do without... As far as, like, that's just the same, like you said, XCOM is a great example, because the story in XCOM is really annoying, and they put it in your face constantly, and you don't even want it anymore past that first run-through. But uh, the tactical battles are really where it's at, and that's the meat of the game, and you just want to get back in there and do more and more of those. Right. Exactly. Um, now, uh, so coming to Card Hunter, because that's exactly what I thought of when I saw Card Hunter, is, hey, this looks like a cool SRPG, but the thing that really grabbed my imagination is how they implement this deck-building conceit. Uh, so, very briefly, Scott, why don't you explain, in case somebody's never seen Card Hunter, how, how does that manifest itself? How, does that, how do they use this card system? Uh, they do kind of a neat thing that I don't think I've ever seen before in any other game, uh, and it's it's a it's a the idea is your characters they're completing missions, quests, and they're getting loot, and the loot is your traditional uh, iron boots or greatsword or what have you. But uh, the the actual items themselves have uh, the cards that you draw during battles associated with them, so you're equipping items on like a paper doll like you would a typical RPG. Uh, but that actually informs the deck that you're going to have when you're actually in the battles and you're drawing your cards. You're drawing the cards based on the equipment you put on your character. And, and what that what that appeals where where I really like that Scott is it's a great compromise between putting a bunch of statistics on an item because I'm pretty sure all of us has, has all of us have sat here and stared at the screen Diablo three yeah. comparing <laughs> two different weapons and the adjectives that define them, agonizing right. over what to use. So there's that level of detail without being numbers, as well as this you know deck building conceit. Uh, instead of just stats, it, it creates this deck building conceit from that. Um, yeah, that's actually a good point that I hadn't really considered. It, it is more fun to look at like two different staves for your wizard and say, well, this staff has two acid sprays. This staff has a fireball, right. as opposed to like, oh, this staff has four more magic or five more intelligence. And what I also find, Scott, and I think this is, again, a, a great thing about Card Hunter, is it's a good introduction to deck building for people who might not be into that kind of card game. Uh, mm-hmm. Deck building has such a distinct vocabulary. I, I, I vividly recall first realizing in a game of Dominion, why would I ever want to get cards out of my deck? You know, why would I ever want to kill my own cards? There, oh. there are these weird vocabulary adjustments that you have to make in terms of gameplay. And what, what Card Hunter does is by appealing to something that we all know, 
you know, I give this fighter a sword and this cleric a shield and this magic user a wand. By appealing to that dynamic, it introduces deck building. And this concept, it's some structure for how you decide what cards go into your deck. Uh, and I think that's a, a big part of its brilliance, I, I think. Um, oh, yeah, that, for sure. Now, Rob, uh, tell me – yeah, go ahead, Rob. So what, what's your experience with, with Card Hunter? I know you've looked at it, uh, and you're holding off to get more time with it, but what mm-hmm. about it hooks your uh, – makes you curious? Yes. Uh, so actually my direction comes from – is a little different. Is So, you know, years ago I kind of dabbled in some miniature-type games, as you know, because board games really hadn't gone through the evolution that they have in the last few years. and mm-hmm. But then miniature games have a whole other slew of, you know, finicky bits and time – consumptions and requirements, etc. So I kind of started to turn to some of the SRPGs as kind of an alternate version, you know, a a digital Ah. replacement for that, so to speak, that you could play single player. Um, And some of those were pretty good, but say, you know, if I'm playing this Gaia or something, it's like I'm not really interested in those extensive story beats in between, and I just want to kind of get from tactical combat to tactical combat. So when I look at something like Card Hunter, it's really amazing to me because even though it is a video game and even though it has all these things with loot and items and such, granted it would be kind of a headache to do all the tracking on, but you could really translate this to a physical product and it would work. And it's kind of neat to sort of look at this thing like it was a, a, a miniature game or so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and I really enjoy that. And that's a big part of their aesthetic conceit as well. This idea complete with the adornments of bits around the, the, the tabletop and the dice. And as a matter of fact, I would describe the aesthetic because they base the storyline on this idea that a dude and his brother are playing a tabletop RPG like D&D. Uh, I would describe the aesthetic as a dice and Cheetos. You know, that's kind of the whole idea <laughs> of here's the tabletop, here are the figures, uh, there are even markers, I, I think. Uh, that's clearly what they're going for with, with the graphics. Uh, oh, yeah. And I've definitely seen that in some other... Uh, other games recently, but in this one, it's like it's not just an aesthetic. They really, they could, if they wanted to, they could create a physical copy and it would work just right, fine. Right. Yeah. So, as far as uh, the form that it takes, you know, it's not a physical copy partly because that's a tough market. It requires an investment in terms of the, the production. Uh, what they have done is they've made it a free to play game. Uh, and Scott, I know you shared some of my same reservations about this. I don't want to be nickel and dimed in some free-to-play game, but I also know, Scott, that you, like me, were very pleasantly surprised with how um, uh, generous, you might say, that the model is. Uh, so why don't, why don't you briefly uh, set anyone's mind at ease about how, as far as free-to-play games goes, this is one of the good guys. Yeah, and, and you know, I and I want to say too that there seems like there's been kind of a, a, a slew of of actually pretty good free to play games this year that have yeah. come out that have you know like um, some some genuine like Path of Exile is a great game and you can play it from start to finish for nothing. Um, so Card Hunters uh, was is, is not my first, but probably my second or third game of this year and of all time where I'm just like, wow, this is actually pretty good. Um, for one thing, if you don't want to spend anything on the game, which I didn't when I was in beta, I played the beta for almost a month straight and never put a dime into it and had a ton of fun. Uh, you can go through from the first mission all the way through the entire, I don't know, story, you know, all the story beats that come up at you. <clears throat> you can go through all that. You can do, uh, you can earn coins from, from, Selling items, uh, a lot of the items you sell are just treasure items. You're going to sell them for gold. You can use that gold in game to purchase more items that you you know just to help kind of level out the the, the RNG. 
Uh, you can um, you can you can you go to multiplayer. You can play multiplayer matches. You can actually, if you're playing ranked matches, you can win prizes. You can all that for free. But that being said, if you just spend like I think I think twenty five bucks is what they have post launch. You can spend twenty five bucks on a package that gives you uh, eleven bonus maps. That's that's all the bonus maps. Um, I think you also get some like character cards to pick from when you're creating your party. Just different. That's just aesthetic, you know. Just pick a different looking dwarf, and you also get um, a month of the membership club, the Treasure Hunters Club, which. Is a neat idea because you don't need it, but it's really fun. You just basically get a random new extra item. Whenever you're opening a chest for winning a map, you get an extra item. And you're going to be opening a lot of chests in the 30 days that a $10 subscription gives you. So it's it's well worth it if you're into the game at all. You even just want to support the developers. Right, right. Uh, I I do feel that... uh, this is one of those games, and, and I'm glad you mentioned Path of Exile because I feel the same way, that you might end up spending money on it, not because you feel like you need to, but out of a sense of goodwill towards the developers. Like, yeah, hey, they like gave me so jar. much awesome stuff. Exactly, tip jar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, chime, I'll chime in and say I, I agree. It seems like free-to-play has become this huge beast with these wide range of, of how punishing it is, but this one seems really to come in at the end of the spectrum where, where it feels like you're not expected, or they—it it doesn't feel like somebody from you know a marketing team came in and said, "No, no, we need to we need to wreck the game in this way so that they pay up." And it's really nice to have those few games like this one kind of step forward to to make it feel like, okay, no, I mean that tip jar is a great way of putting it, actually. And it's so nice to see that free to play no longer exclusively means the kind of stuff Zenga did. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, I I want to raise a. I don't know about a complaint, but so, something that, that has kept me from getting too far with this, Scott, and sort of see how you respond to that. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, I think you have played all the way through the content, if not twice, at least once, right? Like, you, you went pretty far in the beta, and ha- have you recently finished all the single-player content? Yeah, I did. I, I got I got really close. I didn't know how close I was, actually, until I beat it for real after launch. But, yeah, I got, I've almost played every map twice, sometimes three times. Okay. Well, here's one of the things that is holding me back from spending more time with it. Uh, I, I do feel like the pacing is a bit slow in terms of the upgrades, in terms of getting a sort of a meaningful reward, in terms of things happening in the course of a match. And I kind of blame the XCOM reboot, where they did they, they took a really drawn-out tactical game in the original XCOM, and they really compressed everything, from the maps to the pacing to how far you would walk before something different would happen to the mm-hmm. way that the mechanics change up as you level up. Uh, conversely, for me, Card Hunter feels like it, it's more drawn-out, and it takes longer for the kinds of interesting things to happen that really pulled me through XCOM. Um, was that at all a factor for you? How did you feel about the pacing? Um, I don't know as why I thought about it so much, so I guess maybe it wasn't a huge problem for me. I mean, I can see where you're coming from, because that first, I guess I will say that the first, like, what is it, like six or eight levels, when you're, every time you gain a level, you're just getting a new slot mm-hmm. to put more equipment in. That can be kind of a drag when you, you know, when especially when the, the tutorial kind of opens up with all these amazing cards, which, yeah. <laughs> you know, is, that's just the way a lot of games do that sort of thing, I suppose. But, yeah, look at this awesome thing, and oh, sorry yeah. you don't get it for another 10, 20 levels. Yeah, yeah. look at this really good armor. Now we're going to set you off with the worst armor possible. Uh, but I, I love luck. the way they... 
they did that though. That was kind of a fun little story. Oh game. yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure. Like if if someone hasn't started playing Card Hunter and there's really no reason not to try it, it's totally free to just create an account and try it. The opening tutorial is pretty funny. Um, but the uh, the pace once you finally get over that like hump where you start actually you stop getting more equipment slots, which end up being empty for like a good the first hour or so of the game because you're you know you're just level two or three and you just unlocked a shield slot and you never saw a shield yet, so you got to get l- either lucky that the first couple fights you drop a thing you can actually use, or you got to use the junky items that are, are default when you have nothing in a slot. Right. Um, so, yeah, I suppose the first hour or so could, I guess you could kind of say it drags on, but uh, uh, to be a little contrary, I suppose, um, honestly, uh, if you're just enjoying the turn-based strategy of it, <clears throat> uh, I guess I was just sort of happy to just sit there and, sip a beverage and just sort of play with it and kind of have fun with it. And I, I didn't think too much about it, but I guess I also knew it got it gets really hard, so maybe just enjoy it when it's really kind of slower-paced. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, what, I'll, what I'll say, and John Che will talk about this in a moment, is when it gets really hard, it's kind of like that's when you're actually getting into the game. Because as yeah. far as a deck-building game, it really does want you to tune your deck and not just keep trying again until you get a lucky draw and push through with your current character build. Uh, I think that's where the unique appeal of Card Hunter starts to be realized. Um, yeah. So uh, with, with that, let's let's go to John Che at, uh, at Blue Manchu uh, and speak briefly with him uh, about Card Hunter. So I am here now with John Che at Blue Manchu. John, uh, so awesome to meet you. Uh, you certainly have a long history in the industry, and congratulations on uh, how well I imagine Card Hunter must be going. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Tom. It's great to be on the show. Um, it's been uh, quite a, a nerve-wracking couple of weeks, but uh, overall, it's been a very, very positive experience launching Card Hunter. So. Uh, and you guys had a, a fairly, uh, I don't know about long, but certainly uh, there, there was a, I was a, folks were able to get a good taste of the game in the beta. Um, so rolling up to this, you must have had a sense for, uh, A, how well it would be received critically, uh, and B, um, I, I guess how effective the model is. Uh, yeah, we had a we had a very long beta. Um, I think it was actually probably about six months by the end of it. And we had a bit of a sort of an alpha before that as well. So that was, an, a, yeah, like a great luxury to be able to get some sort of sense of, of um, how people like the game and do a lot of tuning of the game during that period. But I, I find when you launch a game, it's always... I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of always pretty pessimistic about these things. <laughs> I wouldn't say I was pessimistic about Cardano, but I try to keep my expectations low. I like to be pleasantly surprised rather than disappointed. So um, that uh, has served me well over the years in trying to sort of rein in my expectations. So I was certainly uh, fairly optimistic about the way that the game was going to be received. And, and you're right, part of that is also, you know, you've got the, the issue of how much people enjoy playing it, but also with free-to-play games, you have the big issue of, sure. you know, whether people are actually going to um, cough up some money whether they like the game enough to want to pay for it, whether you got your payment model right. And we actually had a, a little bit of information on that too during the beta, and, and no, no big surprises after we launched, which was good. Uh, is it um, 
I don't I don't know about disheartening, but uh, it. it I, what, one of the things that I constantly see said about Card Hunter is, uh, I know it's free to play, but it's really good. Uh, almost like yeah. there's a, there, you guys have to deal. I imagine anybody who's doing a serious game design that's not built more as a business model, anybody who's using free to play behind a serious game design has to kind of struggle with that stigma, don't they? Yeah, it's it's, it's really interesting. I did an um, interview with um, VentureBeat uh, a few days ago where. Um, they were basically asking exactly the same question. And and one of the questions they asked was, you know, what's the most disheartening thing people say about your game? And I said, it's when people say, oh, wow, it sounds really cool. It sounds like the kind of game I'd like, um, but I'm not going to play it because it's free to play. <laughs> um, because, honestly, the reason we picked free to play as a model for this game when we started it three years ago was... Uh, we're launching an, a totally new franchise. We're in a genre where we don't have any name recognition. The company's going to be completely new. So what's the way we can make the game most accessible to try to reach people? And obviously we kind of thought free-to-play. This was kind of before free-to-play had really taken off in a big way. So I think we didn't realize that there was going to be quite so much stigma associated with so many kind of junky um you know, treadmill-type games that uh, have, have sort of poisoned the well a little bit. So that is a bit disheartening when we hear that. Uh, one of the things that struck me, though, when I first started playing is I, to you guys' credit, see no super compelling reason. Like, like I feel like you're giving me an awful lot before you're asking me for any money. Uh, and, and even considering the amount I've played, I still don't really feel like I'm being asked for any money. Uh, so as far as free-to-play games, I'm I'm kind of surprised very pleasantly at the generosity in, in Card Hunter. Yeah, well, uh, that was something else we figured, is that, is that if we were going to err, we wish we should err on the side of being overly generous. Huh? Um, obviously, if you err on the side of being um, too, um, you know, too extractive in terms of how much money you want people f- from people and how early you want it, you, you force a lot of people out. Uh, and, and our goal is really to build an audience because we see this as kind of a long-term play. So, um, I, you know, are, are we too generous? I, I don't know. I mean, um, people are. some people are paying. So if you're, if you're way too generous, of course, you know, you, you kind of screw yourself because you just did all this work for nothing. Uh, and I was certainly a little worried that we'd been way too generous. But uh, I don't think we have been. I think we're, um, you know, maybe we didn't hit the exact ideal point between, you know, making ourselves rich and, and making a game that people can just enjoy without paying if they if they don't feel it's worth it. But we're somewhere in the right ballpark, I think. Yeah, well, wherever that falls out, I definitely feel like the folks who are playing come out winners. Uh, I, I feel that's a, certainly a balance that you've hit, and it goes a long way towards erasing that stigma of free-to-play, in my mind. Um, so I do want to talk a bit about before those six months where you had the open beta, back when you were creating this game, um, this idea of creating a, a character's inventory out of gear, and that gear in turn creating a deck of cards in a kind of card-based tactical game. Uh, tell me a bit about the genesis of that idea. Were there other games that influenced it? Was there a eureka moment where that popped into existence? Uh, how did this come about? Um, so I don't... <sighs> It's, I think it's really hard to, 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 to think back and figure out where these ideas came from because I'm pretty sure that, that there was something that inspired it. I, I doubt that it was a completely original idea that popped into my head, but 
on the other hand, I'm not sure what those ideas were. I know that, the, I mean, the reason it exists is because I decided that I wanted to mash up RPG, the RPG type game, um, and a, and a deck building game. And uh, actually, when you take those two ideas, it's kind of, I mean, the rest of this sort of falls out pretty naturally, I think. Um, it's, um, but it's, it's not an idea I've seen uh, in another game, so I'm pretty happy with that because I don't feel like that in my history of making games there are, I mean, I think uh, uh, there are a lot of games I'm very happy with, but there, are, there aren't a lot of ideas like that where I can I, I, I feel like I can't actually discern where that, you know, so that somebody else had that idea before um, so it's, I, I think it's a I think it's a good idea, it does create a bunch of problems because I think whenever you're mashing up to genres like that, you get a lot of expectations from people who are coming at the game from different angles. So, you know, we have the people coming at the game from the collectible card gaming side, and then we have the people who just view it as an RPG where, where you happen to be using cards to, to do the things that your characters are doing. And so, you know, one of the problems we, we've run into, I think, is that some people try to play it like an RPG, and in, a, in an RPG, you typically have a character who goes around and collects a bunch of really good stuff, and then occasionally you find something that's slightly better, but you always have your sort of set of, this is the best gear I've found so far, and you basically just throw away the rest of the stuff you find. I mean, you sell it, usually, and occasionally you buy something that's a little bit better. But in our game, you know, being actually a card game, a, a CCG, you, you kind of need to keep all your stuff and you, you kind of need to keep re-equipping it and essentially remaking your characters on the fly as you progress through the game. And that's something a lot of, I think, people who play a lot of RPGs don't really understand. And then if they do understand it, they don't necessarily like it. I, I can um, imagine that there there is a point where some of the missions start getting more challenging and some people who come from an RPG perspective might feel like they're supposed to just keep banging their heads at this mission until they get the right draw of cards rather than going back and rebuilding their deck. Uh, I, I can imagine that might be quite a challenge for some RPG players. Yeah, because I think it's a new concept for them. And also, it it, it doesn't make sense um, if you're thinking about it purely as an RPG because typically in an RPG, you, you, you create a character and, and that character has a particular direction, you know, like you choose a class for them and maybe you roll up some stats and whatever. And, and that's, you sort of imbued your character with a particular style or purpose within the party or whatever. But in our game, characters are uh, much more ciphers. The character themselves is really just a sort of a template. Right. And by sticking this gear onto them, you're actually deciding what kind of character that is. I mean, you do have the constraint of the class and the race that you can't change once once you picked it. But apart from that, every character is kind of the same and can be remade into whatever you want them to be based on what gear you give them. So that's, I think, you know, it, it looks like an RPG, but it doesn't always behave like an RPG. And that, that I think, can cause, cause people some dissonance. Uh, I, I do, to be fair, though... Uh get a real sense of my characters based on how some of them have very specific slots. Uh, uh, like I, I feel like I find a cool item, and rather than thinking, oh, this is a cool item, I think, oh, this is a cool item that my priest c can use. Right, right. Uh, 
So, so there, there is certainly some personality in each of the templates in that regard. It's not like they just all hold a certain number of items. Um, right. But, it, but the reality is that a, um, like a 10th level elf priest mm-hmm. is exactly the same as every other 10th level elf priest. Sure. Um, if you take their gear away. Right. Right. So, and, so and one of the things, yeah. So, in the future, one of the things we want to do is um, create more, more of those templates um, because I think the templates are really interesting as well as the, you know, we have a massive set of items in the game. But the, you know, um, for example, you could, you know, you can imagine um, a class that was halfway between a warrior and a priest, or a mixture of a warrior, priest, and a wizard. You know, has has a few. Like, we can create lots of different kinds of classes by mixing up those templates. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, f- from that, though, the, the most personality for me in the game is in the inventory items. And when I look at each item and it, there's a spread of cards underneath it, uh, that, that to me is sort of the, the payoff moment. Uh, like picking a skill is seeing this item and then seeing those cards fan out. There's almost a very tactile – there might even be a sound effect, but there, there's this very tactile sense of fanning out. These are the cards this item puts into my deck. Uh, and then looking at each one of them. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean that those those items, building those items was the heart of creating the game. Essentially, mm-hmm. I mean it. It was a very difficult game to build because we had to build multiple layers of it. You know, normally if you just build a card game, you, you've got to create all the cards, which is a massive amount of work in itself. And if you build an RPG, you have to create all the classes, and and that's a massive amount of work. And we had to do all that, and then we had to build all these items uh, on top of having built the cards, and that was. Uh, probably the most interesting part of the game, um, and it's also I, you know, I agree. I think it's the heart of the game is those items. They're what they're, they're what you're collecting, and and that's what what creates the kind of the personality and story of the game is how we bundle those cards together, and and you know how we assign them to the you know you try to we you know we try to pick an item that you know if you get a, a weapon if it's like a a pick you know it's supposed it should have a lot of um, penetrating attacks that bypass armor, and if you pick a spear, you know it should have a lot of range to attacks, and if you know that kind of. So we're always trying to sort of um, correlate the the um, the function of the item and its um, and its name with with what 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 cards it gives you. One of the things that really grabbed my attention when I first saw the game demoed. Uh, I think this would have been at a Penny Arcade Expo at some point, but as soon as I saw the game, the, the first thing that, that caught my eye, that made me think, oh, that's really clever, now I want to play this, is this idea that in a deck builder, you're normally optimizing your deck. Is you're, you're either putting really good cards in there, you're trimming down the number of cards, you're trying to optimize your draw at any given moment. One of the really insidious things that you guys do, which forces difficult, interesting choices, is putting negative cards associated with mm. particular items. Because yeah. what deck builder am I ever going to play where I'm going to put a bad card in my deck? Right. You know, that's right. never going to happen. And you guys, by creating each piece of equipment as a spread of cards, force me into this dilemma where I'm getting uh, you know, fumbles and whatnot drawn right. in my deck. Uh, and I love the drama of that, of... When I turn over a card, it, it might not just be a crappy card, which is the worst case scenario in most deck builders. It might actually be something that has a negative effect on me that I put in there. Um, right. Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of the game. I mean, because that's it, exactly why we put it in there is that, you know, for me, what what I love about card games is that sense of anticipation and, and yeah. of turning over the next card and then having to decide what to do with, you know, what often is a non-optimal 
draw, right. you know, whether it's an actively a drawback or just a card that wasn't what you were really wanting right at the time. But but yeah, I love you know the, that that was kind of the idea is that is that we essentially create a little bit of of storytelling by having these cards um, crop up. Um, when you're drawing, or, or when the monsters are drawing. So, for example, right. <laughs> um, w- w- one of the rules that we have for, for trying to make monster decks is, you know, you might most of the monsters are pretty simple. So you might start by building a monster deck that's only got three or four different kinds of cards in it, but there's no real drama in there. So uh, one of our rules of thumb is always put in a drawback card into a monster deck, you know, whether it's a fumble or a, um, a curse card or, a, you know, a trip or whatever, and always put in a, a really good card, like a card the player doesn't want to see, um, because those, those, those are what create the kind of narrative drama of the moment, in the moment-to-moment gameplay. I also and, feel um, that uh, the, yeah. the monsters, when I see a monster pull a negative card, that's kind of bracing me for the fact that, because they, they do that, I think, before it's the fair. players get yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's fair, and it, it, it lets me know. Oh, this you know. Once I have to start building those into my deck, I sort of see. Oh, that happened to the monster. Now it's happening to me. So yeah, that idea of fairness. Um, yeah, there was, there was another. There was a. I don't know if we have time, but uh, there's another aspect to that that I thought was kind of fun. That I'm a little sad has disappeared from the game. I don't know if you played D and D very early D and D, but they they used to have a big suite of cursed items in D and D, and they were kind of pointless because they were all sort of designed so that they were like booby traps you know there was this idea that you didn't know they were cursed and you picked them up and then there were you know like there were some items that would i remember there's a cloak that would kill you as soon as you put it on um which was just not a great piece of game design um but we we had this idea early on that we actually had a point system for when you're equipping this these items and some items were so bad they had negative point values so you could actually take an item that was just all drawback cards and and uh, you know why would you ever want to take that item because it actually freed up points to ah. equip other items that were even better um, so we actually cut that notion because I, we we felt that it was too kind of pushing the bounds of what people would feel was exciting and fun. Right. Um, I mean, I think if you're a very sort of stat juggly type person, it's fun. But for most people, it was just a sort of I think a bridge too far in terms of trade offs and difficult decisions. Well, now I'm I'm guessing, and I don't know for sure, John, because I I haven't seen the end game stuff. Aren't there surely some items that give you one super badass card and then five terrible cards? To yeah, push yeah, absolutely. That hard? Okay, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I'm talking about these were items that like, were totally nothing, negative, nothing right? But bad cards, right? Like, right. This is just an awful. Like, and I thought that was kind of fun. I, I still do, but I'm, I, yeah, probably was right to take it out. Uh, so here is uh, something that I confess I haven't tried in Card Hunter. I'm intrigued by it, but I think like a lot of people, I'm a little scared of it. I, I feel like, oh, I don't know that I'm ready to click on that yet. Um, the, there's that. multiplayer here. Yeah, multiplayer. Um, so I'm scared, first of all, but I'm really curious how you guys handle this. I've, I, we had someone write it up for, for Quarter to Three, the site, and he, he talked a bit about it, and it was fascinating to me. I just haven't jumped in yet. Uh, that must have been uh, a completely separate kind of challenge. How difficult was that, is to adapt this model to multiplayer? So one of the things that I I, I learned when I was um, running Irrational Games with, with Ken Levine was that, and, and both Ken and I, I think, agreed on this, is that 
we never wanted to do a game that was single player and multiplayer. And if you look at the the history of the games we did, you know, there's a there's a sequence of games that either uh, have not had multiplayer at all, or had multiplayer kind of crammed in at the last minute, or had multiplayer taken out at the last minute because we couldn't get it done. We, we were always fighting with publishers to try to not do multiplayer because we kind of really <laughs> wanted to make single-player games. And they always wanted us to put multiplayer in, you know, which right. was like because to extend the shelf life of the game and so on. But the reality is if you've got a kind of a crappy multiplayer mode that's tacked on to your game, you, you may as well not have done it. And it, it adds a, it's a real multiplier in terms of the amount of work you have to do. So uh, I kind of... Um, I forgot about that when we started work on Card Hunter. And I figured, oh, it's such a simple game. It's a turn-based game. Um, you know, we don't have to do a physics system and all these other things that we would normally do. We can we can do a multiplayer side of the game. And that was a mistake because multiplayer is really, really hard. Um, and mainly just the difficulty is trying to balance for both. Like, the, the Card Hunter is not a technologically difficult game to make, but the design complexities of it are, are huge and multiplayer really is a is a huge um multiplier on that on the amount of design work you have to do but the thing was once we got the multiplayer and actually you know the multiplayer was really helpful in developing the game because you can play it before you even have a an ai to play against and we we really discovered that the multiplayer side of it was I mean, to be honest, I think it's more fun than the, the single-player game. I mean, it certainly has the longevity that um, that is very hard to build into single-player. So well, I can imagine, too, it, it ties into what a lot of deck building is about, is optimizing my deck versus someone else's deck who's using the same kinds of rules. Uh, right. Like, that's what really intrigues me, is I feel like that must be where you really flex the optimization and the deck building concept of this game. Yeah, and and, and it, you know, in single player, you can always you can lose to an AI and then go away and just build a deck that's right, designed right. to smash them. And obviously, you know, multiplayer has the much more complicated metagame where you don't know who you're going to be playing against. You might know that oh, well, a lot of people are playing uh, dwarf warrior parties with a lot of step attacks, but you can't guarantee you're going to face any particular opponent with any particular deck. So you have to you have to build. Um, you know, in a way that 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 does that whole meta gaming aspect that you have in you know in Magic or any other CCG where you're, you're making these kind of complicated guesses about what kind of decks you're likely to face, and then of course we have the additional um, factor of boards. So uh, we have several different boards that are in rotation at any one time, and then we switch between those. At the moment, we're sort of every couple of weeks we're switching the boards, and those affect the metagame, which is, I think, is, uh, you know, an interesting factor that you wouldn't get in a traditional CCG. So, so particular types of builds, I think, are, are going to come and go in terms of their popularity and effectiveness. You know, like if you build a, uh, a wizard deck which is focused around, you know, laying down damaging terrain, that can get much more effective if you're playing on a board that has open lines of sight and, and choke movement choke points. But then if you're playing in a very narrow, enclosed board, those kind of builds can, can struggle. So that that's really interesting, I think. Do you guys feel the need uh, is, is part of what you're doing now balancing with that? Are you just sort of watching? Uh, what What is your current stance towards uh, any tuning towards the multiplayer? So, I mean, we did a lot of tuning in beta, but, yeah, right now we're just watching and gathering data. Um, so towards several times during beta, what I did is just took, 
huge dump of um, all of all the data that we had about how many times each item was used and how many times that item was used in people's decks who are winning, you know, more than 60% of the time, all that kind of analysis you can do with these online games mm-hmm. and try to identify, you know, if there were any sort of degenerate strategies that we wanted to, um, to, to, to nip in the bud to stop them sort of dominating the game and, and making it dull. And so far, I'm just, after launch, I'm just kind of keeping an eye on it. Um, I'm, I'm actually just doing it very... Um, sort of subjectively at the moment, but uh, uh, from what I'm reading and, and 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 hearing people say, there seem to be a lot of different viable strategies. And I, and honestly, I think people are still exploring it. It's actually possible at this stage that there is a, a dominant build. I just don't think anyone's discovered what it is right. yet. Right. Um, it's- it says it's, it's a, almost like the night is still young. We we don't know for yeah. sure. Yeah, I mean we've had we've had millions of games played, but it's 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 an enormously complicated problem, and it's I mean it's a fascinating design problem because it's not one you can solve analytically. It's just uh, there is actually no way to understand whether you've whether, you know what your metagame is like except right. by watching what people do with it because they're, they're just exploring a space that's so large. Um, that you, you can't possibly understand it. Anyway. Now, well, with the single-player space, uh, I feel there's plenty of content there. It, it's the the structure with the the modules and that uh, the the way you guys kind of relate it to old-time D and D modules. Uh, there's a couple options as you level up and you're unlocking new dungeons. You can do the the treasure hunt dungeons. Uh, what happens? Uh, if anything, when when I max out, like is this current is Card Hunter a game that currently has an end? Is there any sort of open ended end game? Um, yeah, so so you, when you get to the end of the campaign, there's an there's an end to the sort of meta game story arc with, with the, the game masters that are you know Gary and, and his brother Melvin, who are who are sort of playing out their little story, and there is a sort of an end to the fantasy campaign, but it's not an end end. Um, we originally designed when we with designing the game, we 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 uh, carried it up to about level 50, and this campaign only goes up to level 18. Mm-hmm. So there's plenty of sort of headroom to, to 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 grow, and you know there are a lot of cards that we haven't introduced that we've developed already. So we do plan to release more sort of uh, content vertically and horizontally, like just providing more things you do within the existing level range. But the idea is that. As we keep, you know, that we want to keep expanding the card set, and as we do that, we keep expanding the single-player content by which you get introduced to those cards and can acquire them. Mm-hmm. So there's plenty more to come, but yeah, I guess there is an end. Um, there's a sort, you know, like at the end of the end of the first chapter or whatever. Sure, sure. Uh, now, finally, I want to ask you, John, about something that. Um uh, someone mentioned to me, and it kind of set off a light bulb in my head. And I was like, oh, yeah, that is kind of different. And I'm curious if you've heard this from other folks. Um, a, lo- a lot of times tuning in a deck-building game is based on getting your deck as small as possible so that any given draw is more likely to get you a, a better card. Um, one of the things that I feel is going on with my characters as I'm leveling up is that my decks are getting bigger and that it's therefore making less likely 
that I'll draw some of my favorite cards. Uh, I, I feel like there's almost a, a reverse to, to tuning in a normal deck building game and, and where you streamline your deck. Here, it feels like as my character's leveling up, I'm getting more cards and my really cool draws are, are kind of getting, like getting lost. Getting worse. Yeah, yeah. no, that, that, uh, that's exactly right. And I think it's a bit of a problem with the game. I've actually, I'm still thinking about that, actually. So what happens is that um, as you go up to about level 10, I think it is, new slots open up. I think, I'm not sure if it's every level, pretty much every level you go up, you get a new slot. And that means you have, yeah, as you say, your deck gets bigger and that causes um, the impact of any one item to get less and less on your deck. The thing is, that's we always envisage that as kind of um, just an early part of the game. And after you okay. get to level 10, you, slots stop opening up. Now, the things that um, fight against that are that as you level up, you get more health, and you also obviously get access to, to better items. Right. So your characters do tend to get more powerful, but there is a weird kind of a thing where in the early game they're kind of going forward and backward at the same time. And I think that's a bit of a problem. Uh, I think we need to do something to counteract that, and I've been kind of mulling that over a little bit. Well, Actually, I, I think when I was in the shower this morning, I was thinking about that exact problem. Well, I have to say, John, I kind of feel like you just did. If if there are no more slots that open up on the way to once you get past level 10, it seems like that's where the work of optimizing the actual cards in your deck uh Begins. Yeah, like that, but you've I, pretty much satisfied my concern right there. I, I feel like well, I, might, I, I might have satisfied your concern, but I'm what I'm. I think what I'm more worried about is people who drop out before they get to that point. Okay, because I think there are some people who who think, well, a that the game's too hard, and b they don't like the fact that their characters they feel like their characters are getting worse. I mean, big part of leveling up, of course, is the feeling that your characters are getting more powerful, and if people are, are I think some people don't think that through. They they're, they're quite happy that they're getting new slots, but right, then right. some people pick up the feeling that you just described, which is I think accurate, which is that their, their decks are getting diluted as they as they level up, and therefore in some sense they're getting weaker. Well, it sounds like just like you were talking about before, the challenge from people who come to this as an RPG uh, and who don't want to have to change out their gear. That's a unique obstacle that that's part of your design um, for RPG players, whereas this idea that on the way to level 10, I'm getting more and more cards, so I'm not optimizing the deck I would in a normal deck-building game, that's a unique obstacle for people coming from the deck-building perspective. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and so we actually have a... a um, we have a, ba- a balancing mechanic that I'm not sure you've even seen yet where you get these little... We call them power tokens. Yeah, yeah, that are, yeah. yeah they're, they're a kind of a, a, a rationing system for how powerful the items you can equip are. And that's our real system for managing the power of the deck. The opening up the slots was is only ever intended to really be a sort of a tutorial element. Mm-hmm. And back when we um, had 50 levels, the idea that the first uh. 10 levels would be tutorialish <laughs> seemed very reasonable. But if you're only getting to level 18 and 10 of those levels are, tu- are sort of tutorially, you sure, know, sure. more than half the game is is taken up with that. So it's it's, it's a little bit of a, a, a probably of a it's, it's it goes a little too far at the moment, I think. What what happened that it went from uh, level 50 to a level 18 cap? Uh, we realized that we were creating you know 100 hours of gameplay <laughs> something for our initial release, which was just I mean we just didn't we just we, we just made a mistake 
calculating the amount of content we were going to build because I think we have uh, roughly, I don't know, we probably have 50 or 60 adventures just at level 18 um, and each adventure is multiple battles and each battle, you know, they're not short battles. I mean, they probably take 10 minutes at least each and you might have to do them multiple times. So there's, it's just a massive amount of content already. But it's not so, like there are 32 levels worth of content that you guys are uh, that you cut out and they're they're hidden in a box somewhere. <laughs> I wish no. They're not. There's a there's a bunch of cards that are designed and ready to go. Like a lot of the more powerful cards aren't in the game at the moment, which is a little bit sad because some of the really interesting cards uh, that we played with a lot during alpha aren't in the game at the moment. But it's kind of nice knowing that we have them ready to release at some stage. Uh, what have, and I, I know you must hate being asked this this early in the process when the night is still young, so to speak, uh, but what have you announced so far in terms of what kind of support you'll be doing and how you might roll out these cards and additional content? Uh, um, what's the plan that you've already talked about? Uh, I don't think we've announced anything because we, we don't really know. Right okay. now, yeah, like we, 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 I try to take this project very much one step at a time um, just because it's... It's all new to me, and we're a small team, and so we don't. It's not like we have some sort of secret master plan that we're following. Um, we, we're working on more single-player content at the moment, and our idea is that when we release that content, there'll be we'll at the same time release a bunch of new cards and a bunch of new items that, and, and perhaps those things are, are more easily found in that new content, mm-hmm. so that it becomes kind of interesting place to explore to collect new stuff as well. But obviously also those items would sort of go into the general rotation of, of things you could find just playing the game. And then, um, but, but also, um, we, we really want to expand the scope of what's in the multiplayer side of things, provide more sort of structure, I mean, social features and tournaments and stuff like that. So we're, we're actively working on both of those things at the moment. Okay. Well, I don't feel like there's any shortage of content, as I, I mentioned before. Uh, so I, I love seeing just how the, the map just is constantly lighting up with with new stuff and new places to go as I'm playing. Uh, so yeah, if anything, I think we might have created a little too much stuff. But, uh, <laughs> got, once again, if you if you guys are going to make mistakes, those are exactly the right kinds of mistakes <laughs> to make from the perspective of us players. So <laughs> glad to hear it. Well, John, thank you so much uh, for for talking a bit about this today. Uh, I uh, this is part of, of sort of a newfound discovery along with Sentinels of the Multiverse for me, uh, a tabletop game called Pathfinder. Uh, along with those two games, I think you guys at Blue Manchu are just doing some great work, reinvigorating the idea of playing with decks and, and deck building games. So thanks oh, a lot, thanks. and uh, best of luck with Card Hunter. Thank you very much, Tom. And we are back now uh, with Scott Lufkin and Rob Harvey uh, to now talk about the next game in our instance of, of characters as cards. Who here has played or will play Pathfinder? I'm raising my hand. Rob, I me, see your me, hand me, is up. Me. Yep, Scott. I my hand. Yeah, that, look, that, that, that sounds like a really cool game. I want to. I'm eager to hear the discussion on that one. So Pathfinder, uh, I, I, I think it came. I don't follow a lot of Gen Con news, but what. What I think I understand about Pathfinder is it kind of exploded at Gen Con, uh, which doesn't surprise me because, holy cats, what an awesome concept. Now, now, Rob, you've been – you're kind of my early adopter with some of these things. I wait to hear from you how awesome they are. It's the case with Pathfinder. It's the case with the third game we're going to talk about. Uh, why don't you explain briefly the conceit of Pathfinder? 
That's interesting. I thought you usually sent me out to ferret out the, ferret the games you were going to avoid, but <laughs> well, you do that as well. But you know, every now and then you find one that's awesome, and I'm like, great, okay, you you were the guinea pig, you took the bullet, now I'm on board. <laughs> and oh. this one worked out great because this and the other one I, I really quite liked. Yeah, I was actually surprised you've taken to it uh, so much because because the co-op mechanic, but but. Uh, it, well, anyway, I, I guess I'm going to disagree with that in a second, but go ahead. But okay, I want, well, I want to explain yeah, got... why that works for me. Yeah. Okay, so in general, Pathfinder also caught me completely off guard. I was actually I don't I don't follow Gen Con. I've never been to Gen Con, but this year I was actually following Gen Con for a different game, and just in in reading about and pursuing information about that one, I sort of you know internet wise bumped into the Pathfinder. The more I read about it, the more I was like, oh my goodness, what is this thing? This is not. This is not any kind of card game or board game I've ever played. It's, it's hey, wait, just... uh, hold on. I can't, I can't let you get by with this. What game were you following Gen Con for? <laughs> oh, so I was, I was going to ask him that, too. <laughs> yeah, oh. like, you can't bury. Well, I feel kind of bad because I was so excited about it. It was a big deal in the household, but it was High Command, which is the um, um, Privateer Press's, well, I would have, it was supposed to be a deck builder, but I really... Having now played it a decent amount, I suspect how much I could really call it a deck builder. I mean, it's it's on the uh, it's on the it's in the naughty pile right now. It's it's on timeout and I'm waiting to see how it develops over time. This this like, Rob is why I let you play these first, so that yeah. I things like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is, is in, in fact, I think it was in the last podcast, but I was definitely thinking of like, okay, this is a deck builder. I think Tom would like. It's got all the things that he really cares about. It's 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 got unique flavor. It's got really rigid mechanic. It has competitive elements. It has severe interactivity. I was like, he'll like it. And after I played him, like, uh, I hope you forgot I even mentioned this one. <laughs> okay, so. nice try trying to slip that in. But okay, so you're following Gen Con for this high command thing. You. <laughs> Bump into talk of this Pathfinder thing. Uh, well, take it from I should also mention, and I should apologize, that I was helped out by a very generous individual in quarter to three uh, of Dream Shadow who helped me to obtain the copy of, uh, of High Command. So it is with some sadness that it turned out to not be what I'd hoped it to be. Have, have you broken Dream Shadow's heart, by the way, and told him that you don't like the game he helped you get? No. I, Wait, I was he to... involved in making it, by the way, or he's just someone oh, who... No, no, he just... Okay. Uh, you know, kind of, I put a general like shout out for, for a Gen Con Ninja, I guess is what they're called, because I knew this particular product wouldn't be available. It's still not available by retail. Um, oh, I see. So he secured a copy for you, sent it along, and then you weren't even polite enough to like it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe my sights were too high. I don't know. I really, in the household, I compare it to my feelings on, on Halo, the last Halo, when they dropped out Firefight. It was just so, I, I, right. I had in my mind something I expected it would be, and it was so far from that that I think it just really poisoned the experience. So. so what I'm hearing from you, Rob Harvey, uh, Pathfinder, or no, uh, High Command gets one star. <sighs> right. Right now it, it kind of does. I, I tried, I tried, but I'm, I'm, it's not, it's not done yet because it is a deck builder and I think that they're kind of, they're finding their feet. I just don't well, know how they're going to find their feet because the whole base set seems like it's got problems. The, the silver lining, of course, that you did find out of this Pathfinder. So, so tell us what that is. Yes. So Pathfinder is a, a neat little beast. As far as I can tell, it, it, it came out of the, the kind of the brainstorming of of folks that are very into traditional pen and paper uh, role playing games. In this case, the Pathfinder game, which I'm not into. I'm not into that stuff. I don't do that sort of stuff. But it's a very different kind of way of approaching games, uh, where you know you have a set group and you meet and you play these games, and um, it's just a totally different kind of thing than, than traditional board gamers or card gamers. But it seemed like 
there was a desire to try to take that experience, crunch it down, make it so you didn't need the game master or whatever, and have the game kind of run itself off of cards, which is a very interesting thing to do because these traditional RPG games have a much more story-focused, they're much more character-based type game, and most importantly, they have persistence, which, generally speaking, board games, card games, they don't. You play it, you're, you know, you're done in 30 minutes, six hours, two days, whatever, and you're done. That's it. You pack it all up, you start a new game, you do whatever. Whereas Pathfinder's real hook is you're not. Every game is is hooked together. So you have a persistent character with persistent inventory, and you end up chasing after loot, or you can you know remember what happened when your character was a newbie, and, and all this kind of stuff that really makes it a very unique product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I... I have to disagree when you call it a little beast. Uh, I think Pathfinder is pretty huge. That box is pretty <laughs> imposing. Uh, and it, it, it comes as when you buy it, it, I think it's even called the basic set. Like Pathfinder colon, adventure card game colon, the basic set. Um, and, and what they want you to do is buy the basic set. And it's an enormous box considering the cards that are in there. There's a lot of air in there because the idea is that over time you will buy the different adventure modules or sets and then you'll build them into that box. And your collection of monsters and items and armor and spells will just grow as you incorporate the, the add-ons in there. Um, yeah, I would definitely... Yeah, it is definitely a beast, even with just the core set, quote-unquote. But I really... I mentioned it in the forum before. I really think that somebody would be kind of kidding themselves if they think of it as just a core game. I mean, it can work that way, but if you really want to get into the hook that really works for this game, you should consider it a, whatever it is, a 1,200-card game that's going to be released slowly over the course of a year. Yeah, like an episodic content kind of a situation, and that's that's exactly. how they're positioning it. I mean, they're not trying to you know pull the wool over your eyes. I think they're very upfront that this is episodic. You're getting it in, in bits and pieces. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so... The things that uh, now, Scott, uh, you know about Pathfinder, right? But you haven't tried yeah. it yet. Is that correct? Um, I, I I watched it with great interest. Maybe even the video that I watched was out of the same Gen Con he's talking about. Um, I, I watched the. It was kind of uh, I, one of the, one of the designers. I think was kind of walking through how it works, um, and it seemed right in my alley. I love board games like uh, Descent. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Or or, or we we uh, some of my buddies of mine just played um, uh, like like a twenty hour descent campaign just oh. this last weekend. <laughs> oh, it was pretty grueling, but we got through the entire campaign and it was but a lot of fun. You um, said you had kids. How does that happen anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I can't dream of doing that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm lucky because my own my own boy he uh, he's he's into the same he's into board games and stuff. So it's like having a smaller version of me in the house. Yeah, uh, I, oh, the thing is taller than me. So, yeah. <laughs> well, they, they have to get to a certain age, I guess, Rob. So you might yeah. have to, you know, some of these things you might have to table until your your boy gets a little older. So. Yeah, yeah, just hang in there. It happens. Over yeah, time. I think I'm I think I'm in the twilight where he's just kind of starting to come online and I slowly introduce him to more and more games. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Get him indoctrinated. Just start making him sleep with a board game. Just you know, put his, uh, <laughs> take away the stuffed animals. Put that hey. big giant Pathfinder box. Yeah. Do you want to play with some twelve-sided dice? I bet your friends don't have any of these. <laughs> uh, I well, try. We're going to go on things like uh, the Star Wars miniature game and uh, Dust Tactics and some of the simpler stuff that doesn't require too much reading or too much math. But yeah. 
20 hours of descent would be a hard one to pull off. <laughs> I, I'm amazed he can do it, but he, he actually was the overlord, in fact. So, Ooh. yeah, yeah. Well, what I, what I like about Path, I, I, by the way, hate Descent. Uh, you know, the, these co-op games, especially the games where it's players against some sort of a game master, I'm just not interested in that, that kind of tabletop RPG stuff anymore. I mean, I love that people still do it, but it doesn't really work for me. So one of the things I love about Pathfinder is it kind of lets me experience that, but in, in, the, in the context of, of very specific rules, it's very card-driven, I can ignore the story beats if I want, uh, but it's that same idea of getting together with friends, leveling up my character without the embarrassment of having to role-play the tavern keeper or whatever, uh, and, and, and having a character advance. Uh, and that, again, very much this kind of XCOM or SRPG experience, where I'm just showing up for the tactical interactions. Um, and, and from that, I get that persistent leveling up. Um, Actually, I was going to ask about that. Um, so that sounds like there's no Game Master or Overlord running the game. So is it just everybody who sits down at the table all working together, there's, they're, just, they're just playing against the mechanics? Yeah, and and what I think is unique, one of the things that uniquely appeals to me in Pathfinder is unlike other co-op games, uh, the two things, um, the persistence lends the game a, a sense of greed. So I, when I'm playing the game, I have my character. I'm not just here for this game session. I am here because I want my character to level up for one thing. Uh, and the leveling up isn't quite like you are in experience points. Is if you it if you achieve the, the the goal of the scenario, you get a special gift, a bonus. But along the way, anything you find while you're playing, you can keep. So there's this almost tension of self. Uh, of, of greed, of me wanting more loot for myself, more advanced cards, as well as me having to cooperate with everyone so we can all earn that uber piece of loot, the overarching mm-hmm. reward. So that's one of the things that I really like about it that has unique appeal. Is Even if we lose, by the way, I, you know, I, I can die, there's permadeath, but even if we lose, if we don't make that, that uh, main goal, if I found some awesome like wand of the frost ray or something, you know what? I'm good. You guys can lose. I don't care. I got what I wanted out of this. So it's not quite a trader mechanic, but it is a, a mechanic of, of enlightened self-interest, I might I might call it. Um, but the other thing I really like about it is unlike a lot of co-op games, it doesn't feel so much like a race against a clock, even though there's a clock mechanic, uh, or trying to hold back this onslaught of, of chits or cards or whatever. Instead, Scott, the mechanic in a game of Pathfinder is searching through decks of cards, each of which represents a location, to try to suss out a main villain. You're, you're, you're searching through the cards, you're looking for where this guy is, and you're trying to maneuver him into a position to defeat him. And it feels much more like maybe navigating a dungeon or exploring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whereas your character is a deck of cards, the location is also a deck of cards. And when you first start, you're just at the mercy of the order and you're flipping the cards. But as you get more powerful and as you introduce different asymmetrical types of characters, you can do more cool stuff with the card management, like looking through the deck or changing the orders of things or casting a spell to peek at a card without necessarily having to fight it if it's a monster. Um, so I really like the unique mechanics in it. Uh, that works a lot for, for me. Uh, so, so Rob, when when you've played, uh, tell me, like, uh, have you have you tried it solitaire? By the way, Rob, uh, we really haven't done solitaire. We've done a wide range of 
characters on it. Although it, it really it's pretty elegant in how it works with because essentially the way it works is you the number of players you have will involve the number of locations and the clock so to speak is kind of the same, but every time a player takes an action it, it rotates the clock so. It doesn't matter how many people you have; it's going to scale fairly well. And right. if anything, it's kind of interesting because the more players you have, the um, well, I guess I can. Um, the more players you have, the more interesting it becomes interactive because everyone's trying to decide when to best burn their blessings to make a particular thing happen. A blessing is essentially lets usually a special thing happen. You know, an extra die is rolled or lets you skip through something, and it, it becomes pretty interesting as it expands but it also condenses uh, fairly well one of the things that I also like about more players um, and this can be solitaire but at a certain point playing solitaire you're you're not going to want to try to wrap your head around too many characters but it plays with from two to four characters with the base set so that's two to four players if you buy the additional add-on you can go up to six players the more players, the more characters you're using, the more locations there are for each scenario. And some of the later locations really sort of mix up and tweak the gameplay in cool ways. So if you're just playing with one other buddy doing two-player, that works fine, but you're going to miss some of the really cool stuff that that gets folded into the game when you have three, four, five, or six players, uh, I think. And I think that's definitely one of the cooler things, because I have seen some people kind of, the ones who don't seem to really enjoy it as much, they see it as a very... Because it, at, at its core, it does sound pretty simple. It's like, okay, you flip over a card. The card yeah. tells you you have to beat something. You're going to roll a die if you beat it or not, and 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 you kind of go on. But it's it's a little more expanded than that, especially as you as, as you're saying, as you get to some of those deeper locations and you have more characters on the board, it becomes almost a secondary game in itself to try to decide, okay, who's better, at, you know, who's got the intelligence to handle right. the probable things that are going to happen here, or who has enough combat to survive this, or who has maybe. Right a monk who has combat that can then take the waterfront on because you need to fight, but you need to fight without weapons because you'll take a big negative hit for weapons. Ah, I didn't even think of that. The monk at the waterfront. It does. Oh, yeah. yeah the I monk don't know always goes to the waterfront. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it does, some, it does some cool stuff, and you're right, it, it does expand. Uh, but well, and, and you're touching, too, just sort of, I'll mention real quick, uh, just the asymmetry with the different characters. You know, this concept of, yeah, the monk goes to the waterfront. Duh. I mean, there, there's a lot of kind of eureka moments like that, where you realize how a character's unique gameplay mechanic can fit into the game in unique ways. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, go, go ahead. Sorry, I cut you off. Uh, no, I was going to say, so as far as the solitaire or the cooperative element, something I thought was really interesting that I have been kind of thinking about, because I know... I'm you know, not to, to harp on this at all, but I know that you, you're resistant to certain cooperative games, and I'm really thinking about it, and I think we're really watching this kind of golden age of, of board games seem to kind of show up. As it, it seems like you know, the era of, of people that grew up with, you know, Atari and pizza parlors and, uh, you know, early-type board games that weren't just like Monopoly and that sort of thing are now older and producing these things. Well, so and tabletop D&D, you know, that's, that's yes, what I Yes, tabletop D&D, exactly. Or even, say, comic books that aren't just comic books. They're now movies and video games and cartoons and that sort of stuff. So it seems like this has kind of had a secondary effect of a golden age of... of oh, sorry, Kate. A golden age of um, these board games being crafted where in the course of a few years we have an amazing revolution of, of games but not only just games but then new concepts like deck building and then see that deck building concept just 
revolutionized over and over and over again to the point where I'm feeling like the cooperative mechanics that we saw even just a few years ago were very simple, basically solitaire games. You could play just as easily with one or five players. It really didn't matter. There's no real inactivity to now kind of elegant things that really do flesh out the value of having different people and have complicated mechanics uh, even like the the health system, this is this is a unique thing about Pathfinder, or or fairly unique, is your health is your deck of cards. I played another game a few years ago, the Gears of War game, where your health is your deck of cards. When you take a point of damage, you discard a card. It didn't really work for me in the Gears of War game because it felt so artificial. It's like, okay, great, I just lose some cards. It's like you know, magic or something telling me to discard. Where in Pathfinder, it feels so much more elegant because you really have control over what's in your deck, what's going to be in your deck, ways to get to or to come back to cards that really makes that mechanic really interesting. Sometimes you want to take damage, sometimes you want to take damage in a certain way, sometimes it's tragic if you take damage. It's not just strictly, oh, I'm discarding a card. So, well, hmm, uh, for that, that basic... Seems... Oh, go ahead, Scott. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. Um... So I have a quick question then. Oh, maybe it's not going to be a quick question, I guess. But uh, so you're talking damage, and I saw when I was looking on the board game geek I saw a while back, there was a um, uh, like a note about the pieces that come with it. I remember when I remember seeing all the dice. It looks like there's a whole bunch of dice that come with it. So like, how does the how does the combat work? So uh, the way that checks work, basically, if you were to just distill this game down to the the bare mechanics. Um, and it, it, it's, you know, there's more to it than this. But the way it works is you flip over a card and you're going to have to do some kind of a check, whether it's a combat check or a trap check or even a check to acquire a magic item that you've seen. And the way checks work is that characters don't have stats. You know, my fighter's strength is not 10 and my wizard's strength is not 2. Instead, mm. each of those stats is a die. My wizard's strength is a d4. My mm. fighter's strength is a D12. So if I turn over a door that is stuck, I need to do a strength check of 6. Therefore, my fighter rolling a D12 is going to do it way more easily than my wizard rolling a D4, who can't get through that without some sort of a special additional card he's using. Ah. So that's the basic dynamic, and they play with it very nicely. Uh, there's a lot, of, you know, it, it's a lot of dice and a lot of cards. You know, the chaos of a of a card game and the chaos of a die rolling game they come together and they will bite you in the ass many times as a matter of fact uh it has permadeath the idea is that you play the game and as your character levels up you're supposed to mark on the card what what upgrades you're picking uh, what i settled on is putting a card protector on it and sticking a little piece of tape on the outside of the card protector uh-huh. to mark the checkbox yeah <laughs> so I, I totally just put up for the first time ever I now am using card protectors, but only for Aww, the character cards. Card sleever, how dare Aww. you. I know. <laughs> but uh, I, I actually lost a character. I, I had gotten... So the game comes with an introductory adventure, which is three scenarios, and then it has the main adventure arc's first section, which I think is five scenarios. I had gotten my sorceress to the... I, I think the through halfway through the main thing we were in the fourth scenario we were one scenario away from basically beating the content that comes with the core selection the core uh, game set uh and i i got ambushed i had an ambush card the guy I was playing with couldn't help me my sorcerer died you know i lost all the cards i'd gotten i had to take the piece of tape off where i put it on her little upgrades <laughs> um and it you know that 
that's because dice can happen. You know, she I had a great build, she was powerful, but for whatever reason, this ambush card completely screwed me over, uh, and I experienced permadeath. Uh, Rob, have you had any... Yeah, yeah I, I want to hook into a couple of those things. Huh? I think that's another two two things you were hitting there. I think really touch on the magic of this game that you really don't expect is as far as the permadeath. It kind of feels like you're playing Diablo, but only in hardcore mode. Right. And because of this persistence, unlike most other games, you really do feel attached to that character. You're like, oh man, because my I'm, my paladin's got some, you know, has this special icy long sword, and has this. I remember when I got the two handed great sword, and it resulted in all kinds of statements about, you know, great sword to the face and all that kind of stuff. And what I would it would be painful to have, you know, suddenly that explosive rune wipe out the paladin that I'd be it would really it would not be a good day. And I think that's they did a good job of borrowing from the traditional pen and paper RPG feeling of like you really kinda because on the one hand I'd say Pathfinder's a little easier than most co op games, but at the same time if something goes wrong, you're really gonna feel it. So. And, and think of how painful that's going to be down the line. You know, once they start adding the more adventures, like I was okay with losing my sorceress, the sorceress at this point. If it had happened after a couple of more sets of adventures had come out, I, I, I might have had to drink heavily for a night or two. I don't know. Yeah, I can almost <laughs> picture people on like, uh, you know, adventure deck four or whatever. You know, essentially it starts getting kind of hairy, and they're like, no, no, I'm not exploring anymore. I'm, I'm right, past, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take Something- the safe route. Something Tom said that brought a question to my mind. So it sounds like we have. I, I know there's a whole bunch of more um, like uh, expansions that are are out and, and coming out for it. So are these expansions? Are they not standalone? Like, do you have to no. have characters that you have leveled up to a certain point to be able to start doing them? They do. So uh, actually, in a moment, let's go talk to Mike Selinker about this, the guy who div- who created the game, but. Uh, as, as we mentioned before, they're very upfront about this is an episodic game. When you buy this base set, uh, not only is it only going to get you so far, I think the content in the base set you could probably get through in maybe two game sessions with your buddies. Uh, in a way, it feels very limited. They kind of taunt you with some content in the box that you have no way of using yet. For instance, every character can choose one of two advanced subclasses, which do some really cool things, but and that comes in the basic set. But all the cards in the basic set, and even the first little add-on you can buy, there's no way you can access that content yet. So you're in it for the long haul. The stuff that they release down the road, you're not going to be able to play until you've basically leveled up through the content that you've got now. So it's it's a... Uh, at times, I can imagine it'll be a... I, I can imagine it'll be a very successful business model, but keep in mind, it's a business model distinct for, from other games you've played. Uh, and, and let's actually now go talk to Mike Selinker about that. All right, we are here now with Mike Selinker, designer of the Pathfinder adventure card game, uh, which we've been chatting about. And uh, Mike, as you just now, as we spoke briefly about, I had no idea what <laughs> Pathfinder was. This is Paizo's uh, RP, tabletop RPG property. Um to me, this is a, an opportunity to. This is sort of an insight into two different things. First of all, your 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 card game design. And I want to talk about that, but also it makes me curious as I'm playing. What's this Pathfinder thing? Who are these characters? What on earth is the deal with the Thistletop Delve? Uh, right. I, I feel like there's a little window that's been opened into something that I know nothing about. Uh, what awesome. is going on there? What that's is, awesome. What is, uh, well, thanks. 
Thanks so much for having me on, Tom. I mean, this is going to be fun. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Pathfinder Adventure card game is kind of the fusion of about four or five different things, right? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it takes some of an RPG and some of a card game and some of a cooperative puzzle, uh, game and some of like what you get out of a computer RPG like Diablo. Um, but the, the sort of big, uh, expansive thing that got contributed to the game was the Pathfinder universe. And this, it's just this truly amazingly deep, epic environment where you get these sweeping stories of, of, you know, dragons and pirates and, and giants and, and monsters and gods and all sorts of other things. And, and it really feels like, uh, uh, it's just an amazing world, and I'm very, very happy that I did not have to create it from scratch. <laughs> right? Well, there's, there's clearly a sense that you're you're building on something that's been established, and I think yeah. that that is clear from the get-go. When you sit down, and when I'm playing this, I, I don't get to pick a sorceress or a rogue or a halfling bard. I'm picking a named character. Yeah, They're going to specific places. It's not just. You know, this city, you know, it's the Swallowtail Festival. I, I see that and I'm like, the what? I want to know what that is. Let me look at this artwork. Let me see what happens here and sort of suss out what, what they're pointing towards. A lot of it feels like a signpost to an existing world, an existing mythology. Well, that's cool. I mean, we, you know, I wanted to, uh, importantly, uh, I wanted to put like flavor text on every card, um, but I wasn't willing to write any of it. Like, I mean, you know, when you have, when you have a thousand cards in your game, um, you, so, so we got a lot of it on there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it's just so deep. I mean, instead of, uh, the creation of one author, you know, like, imagine if this game was, was Lord of the Rings, which already has a, a really good game by, uh, fantasy flight associated with it well that's the creation of one author and he wrote a lot of stuff but he didn't write so much that that you know everywhere you turn there was a different creative vision right you're just sort of enacting one vision this is this is dozens of really really talented authors visions and i get to sort of use what i like in it and make something uh great out of the the fusion of all that stuff it it is a really nice thing to basically when you walk into the paizo offices uh there's this giant there's this room that's just giant bookshelves and they basically say so what do you want to do right i mean they they they've printed hundreds and hundreds of projects um and 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 like these are so this game is the rise of the rune lords version of the pathfinder adventure card game but but they have uh now have you know more than a dozen of these adventure paths that we could do and so you know they like uh if if it all works out i mean it seems like it's going really well um, you know, they, they sort of paraded those in front of me. Like we have this, this one that's set in Far East Asia and this other one in Egypt and this other one that's about, uh, building your own castle and armies. And then there's this other one that's about, um, pirates and, and just, you know, where do you want to go today? And just having that 
roadmap laid out is is really nice because as a designer, I mean, I've I've designed RPGs. It's not like I'm unfamiliar with it, but but I'm also very familiar with the amount of work that goes into designing an RPG. And to just, you know, when I come up with these card mechanics or when Chad comes to me with a, a subsystem that he'd like to use or, 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 or Paul comes to me with a game breaking, uh, a feature to a card, I can go, Oh, wait. Yeah. I kind of saw something that matched that. You know, um, it's, uh, it's, there's a, you know, just, just knowing that, uh, when, when we design a card that says, uh, I this card pulls you to a location. They've got like several types of harpy that we can use, mm-hmm. right? And so it's pretty cool. Well, so let's let's get into some of the design nuts and bolts here because that's yeah. really I, I feel like uh, the, the mythology is interesting. But where, where this game really gets its hooks into me is with some specific design decisions that I want to cool. break down and talk to you about some of them one at a time. Um, Love it. The first one, of course, this idea of, of your cards is your hit points. You know, your deck isn't just a resource. It's also a limitation. Every card I use is one card fewer that can protect me from damage. Or maybe you can tweak the fact that I get to recharge a card instead of discard it. You have n- unique mechanics with, with burying or banishing cards. Um, tell me a bit about the evolution of this. And, and if I'm not mistaken... Didn't you even play with this with a, a Marvel-themed game maybe 10 years ago? Uh, isn't this yeah, something that sort wow, of evolved over time? That's reaching back quite a bit. Um, yeah, uh, I did, actually. I mean, I don't know if you can draw a direct line between um, the Marvel superheroes adventure game um, or... Or for that matter, Betrayal at House on the Hill, which is another game I, I did, I worked on and stuff like that. But I mean, it all sorts of swirled together. Um, so the Marvel game had fate cards, um, that, uh, uh, you know, that, that sort of gave you a direction for your game as well as figuring out, uh, what, you know, like how much damage you did or how likely you were to succeed at a strength test or something like that. Um, and there's a little bit of that here. I mean, there's a lot of influence from a lot of places in this game. Um, I had a lot of things in my head, like, um, uh, the tile, the tiles come from, you know, might come from something like the old game Blackmore Manor and the, um, you know, the locations, I should say, and the, the, um, the, there's there's little bits of uh, Diablo in here and little bits of of uh, the video game Eco and I mean just just all sorts of swirling stuff right I mean obviously we created some new stuff but but the, the I mean the cards as hit points thing you know basically comes from you know knowing having been worked a little bit on Magic the Gathering and and just knowing how it feels when uh, you you run out of cards and you know the the world caves in on you right um, and so it's specifically not what happens in most deck building games right this is where it really diverges from a lot of those kind of games because the Dominion and its clones uh, tend to tend to be shuffle building games where you just keep going through your deck over and over again and this one if you do that. Well, you get to do it once. Right. 
right? right. It's very it's yeah. a very rare thing. Like the cards, the direction of the card flow is kind of one way for the for the most part, and painfully yeah. one way. Yeah, you know? and, and I mean, like I said, there's 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 characters in the game. One of the things I really wanted to make sure that happened in the game, and, and Chad was particularly good at making this happen, was making sure that all the characters really play differently. So so some of the characters are like built to try to put cards back in your deck. Mm-hmm. But but and that's great except they lose on some other things. They don't they're not not as good as exploring and they're not as good at at fighting maybe and and stuff like that, right? So uh the idea that that you can play a character that's probably not going to die is built into the game at the consequence of you may lose. Right. Right. I, mm-hmm. So I, I just spoke with, uh, with, with some of uh, the folks on the podcast, and that was something that came up, is this idea of uh, there's a tension, unlike that doesn't exist in a lot of co-op games, where I'm partly looking out for myself. You know, As I find things, they can go into my deck. I'm uncovering treasure. But then almost a secondary consideration is helping everyone, everyone else win so we get that one reward. So it, it feels, and this is all due to the persistence for the most part, but it feels like a tension between enlightened self-interest and, and cooperative gameplay, which, as far as I know, doesn't really exist in a lot of board games, but is constant in tabletop RPGs. Exactly. You know, when exactly. I'm playing, yeah, and and I just I, I find it brilliant how this one little idea of a persistent set of cards introduces a dramatically new, unprecedented uh, system for for board games. Well, I think I think that I mean that's exactly right, and, and I think um, with the exception that you probably put a lot more flowery words on it than I would have, but um, <laughs> but I um, uh, yeah, I mean. There's been a goal for a long time, not a long time because this game hasn't been out very long, but but for a while about cracking something called the pandemic problem. Ah, Um, explain that. What is that? Because I hate pandemic. I want to hear what the pandemic is. I don't hate pandemic, but it has. I I know. A lot of people love pandemic, but I'm guessing that the pandemic problem is going to be an encapsulation of why I hate it. What what does that mean? It means that one person can run the game for yes. five days. Right? <laughs> exactly. I don't uh, need to be here. One person can play it. I'm just watching. Yeah. Exactly. And so, <laughs> so um, you know, I looked at that as a design challenge. Like, can I kill the pandemic problem? Because uh, I want to design a cooperative game. Um, I, I, that's kind of where it started, right? It's like I have never designed a cooperative game other than a role-playing game. Right. So, so as a game designer, what is the challenge that faces me when I – want to design this game and I said well I'm I'm starting with the pandemic problem is going to die. And so the way I figured out to do that was I want you to care about your deck very very much. And so the persistence element is is a major portion of that where where you know it's it's better it's great if we all as a group find the super magic longsword but it's really good if I do. <laughs> right and so especially when you can walk away from your group like you can take your character roll it up in your sleeve and go over to your friend's house and you take that magic longsword with you right and like nobody's getting it out of the game because you just walked away with it and so then it starts to really matter and so the pandemic problem to some extent anyway disappears and i i found that that was what made people 
really compelled to play the game. Um, and I've seen people who say, you know, and, and I hope this is rare. Uh, I don't really like this game, but I can't stop playing it. Why do they right? not like it? Like what's, what's... I mean, like they don't like if if they don't like it, they they might be saying, well, you know, it's you know, there's just been some talk, like it's just flip a card and roll a die or something like that. Now that's what I don't think that's true, obviously, but um, but you know that that the gameplay isn't what attracts them, which is really weird to say about a game, right? Mm-hmm. Instead, it's this sense of of investment and and wanting to to grind through it and get better and and make sure that the right decisions are made and 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 I hope that along the way they actually are having a good time but but it's really scratching an itch they didn't know that they had with their board and card games and had never been willing to invest in for the RPGs right like the the thing about an RPG so if 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 one problem to solve was the pandemic problem. Another problem to solve was the omniscient game master problem, right? You can't build a game without a game master and expect people to run through it um, without the game master role of guiding them towards some conclusion, Right, and that's a, that's a real problem. So that's where the timer deck came from, right? Mm-hmm. The timer deck is this doom clock that, if you decide that you're essentially better than the game, the game will cause you to lose. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be aware. You have to to keep on a certain pacing. And I think that also heightens the dramatic tension. Whereas a lot of RPGs, while they get the dramatic tension from the possibility of death and and loss of the permanent stuff, they can lose on the pacing part because there's no sense that the game is trying to kill you. Right. Right. And so, in fact, there's this, there's this person who might be going out of his way to specifically not kill you. And we needed to get rid of that too. And so this, this pressure builds up, um, kind of like, you know, uh, putting a lid on a pot of boiling water. And hopefully at the end you succeed and, and you get what you want and, uh, and, and so forth. But I mean, we, we really tried to hit those problems, um, that we saw in both, in, in, in all of the things that we were borrowing from. What, where those, uh, two things that you touched on there and what you said, uh, that really stand out for me and, and make me like the game as much as I do. Uh, the guy who says it's just flipping cards and rolling dice, um, I, I think he's underestimating how well built together those systems are. Like, I love how much card management and dice management. It's not, I, I'm not completely at the whims of the dice. It's not like, like risk where a D6 can upend me or win the game for me. I have a lot of control over how those dice play, when I'm going to roll them, what kinds I'm going to roll, whether or not other players are going to help me roll them. Uh, I, I feel that the flipping of the cards and the rolling of the dice is so interactive in a way that it's not in a lot of games. Um, I think at one point I actually said, you know, when I was young and dumb, um, a game doesn't need both dice and cards, right? <laughs> well, now my two my two most successful games that I've worked on in the last couple of years are 
Lords of Vegas, which has oh. uh, a full card deck and 48 dice in it, uh-huh. <laughs> right? And now the Pathfinder <laughs> game, which has, like, 15 decks of cards or 19 decks of cards and a full set of dice, right? So, so I mean, obviously, I, I, I've changed my position on that. But um, well, in both instances, Mike, they're tools. I mean, they're, they're tools yeah. that you can incorporate with different... Gameplay vocabularies, you know, there there are ways you can use those things and not have them solely drive the game. Uh, yeah. you know, and they're both a little chaos, and this is chaos that we can kind of manage and shape and sculpt a little bit as we play. I think uh, at some point on Lords of Vegas, James said, you know, when James said, what if it had 48 dice? Sorry, James Ernest, my co-designer, uh, uh, said, what if it had, you know, 48 dice? I said, that's a lot of dice rolling. He said, ah, but what if you didn't roll them a lot? Right. <laughs> and I was like, maybe I'm missing the point here, Mr. Famous Game Designer. <laughs> and, and the same is true in the Pathfinder game where we say, what if this game had a whole lot of cards in it? Well, that would be a lot of randomness. Well, what if you could control that randomness quite a bit? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so in some sense, in both games shaved off the thing that those components were known for. And so with that, you got this sort of new style of gameplay with both of them that I think, I think comes through really well. I, I, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, we're still, you know, what are we, uh, a month and a half into the life cycle of the adventure card game, right? So, uh, we won't know if we've created a new style of play for quite some time, but the early, Early signs are pretty good. Right? Well, I, I want to talk in a moment about some of the, the business decisions and this idea of episodic releases and, and stuff. Sure. But, but first, before we move on, I, I want to call out another thing that I really feel is distinct in Pathfinder, that the guy who's saying, oh, you're just flipping cards and you're rolling dice, that I feel that he's missing. Um, unlike a lot of co-op games, uh, the the clock here isn't that relentless like, like the, the clock isn't yeah. counting me down to, to losing it's just yep. counting me down to letting go of that one uh, reward hanging at the yep. end uh, yep. it, but furthermore this isn't one of those games where I feel like there's a there's a tide of, of counters or units or monsters um, no. there's a there's a game called Arkham Horror which I, yeah. I can enjoy but I, Arkham Horror is just about suddenly there's just monsters everywhere and you're just overwhelmed it's, it's a matter of trying to stick your finger in a hole in the dike and then two more holes pop open and that, yep. that gets that gets mentally exhausting yeah. uh, when this you play that goes, kind of game this game goes the other direction right well I mean, and pandemic by the way i feel this, yeah. you know pandemic well, that, just gonna, right. but this game i not just goes the other direction but i think basically says you know what screw that model what you're gonna do when you play pathfinder is you're gonna be searching for a dude and trying to set up the main bad guy, and there's some exceptions to this, but most of the scenarios seem yeah. like there's a main bad guy, and you're, you're you're jockeying into position for the kill. You know, there's a guy hiding out there. You've got to find him, and it feels like exploring locations. Is he here? Is he there? Oh, someone found him here. Let's go ahead and close off these locations, and then let's gang up on him. Uh, it feels completely different from the designer from, from the gameplay, throwing all these overwhelming odds at me. And I feel like I'm in more control. It's almost like poker. You know, I can opt out if I want. I can push my luck if I want. Or I can take my time and just set up the odds in my favor. Uh, and it, it feels unique. It, 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 to me, offers a unique gameplay feel uh, in a co-op game. This is really a gambling game. 
in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it, um, press your luck. That phrase was used very early on in the design where we just felt like, you know, if we gave you all the tools to hang yourself, would you actually hang yourself? Right. I mean, and, and that's the game. It's, it's funny that the, the primary threat in this game is you. Right, 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 exactly. Yeah. It's my own fault that I used that sage to explore, and now I can't fully reset my hand, and I'm dead. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I mean, the, I, I, one of the things I said about this game uh, early on, and it turned out to be relatively true, is when you die, you know how it happened. Like, you, you, you can go back, like, you know, like the, 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 the American government in Vietnam and go, how did I get here? Oh, look, all these <laughs> signposts told me not to do this, right? And so, I mean, there's some real value to uh, one of the reasons that I think people play it over and over and over again is sort of setting their risk assessment, you know, setting their comfort level. I've seen people who will not play this game without the character Kyra on the team. Kyra is no, sorry, the the healer, healer. the cleric. You're right, the cleric. Yeah, and and the reason is that. Uh, Kyra's job is to make sure that you always have enough resources to to be able to fight the bad guy when you finally encounter him, right? You know, you're not stripped down to nothing. You've got all your stuff back in your deck. Great. The problem is that Kyra is a drain on the party. That is, her job comes, her healing comes at the expense of her own actions. Right. Right. One fewer and if, person exploring, searching, setting up the kill. Exactly. And so so what I've discovered is that there's other players who will never play with that character in the group because they can't afford to lose the explorations. They can't afford to, um, to do that. The opposite character in this game is Mauricio, who's the, the rogue, mm-hmm. who is very good at killing herself. Right. I mean, she she discards cards all the time to win her fights and and so forth. And but her problem is that uh, she doesn't ever have to fight when she doesn't want to, which people look at. And so that's the most powerful ability in the game till you realize that every time you do that, you lose an exploration. That's one more card off the timer deck. Right. Right. And so, um, you know, it's it you spend time with this game learning who you are. And, um, you know, I think that's pretty cool. I mean, I didn't know, like, I, I look out among my developers and I've seen behavior patterns that I didn't know were there, but they definitely play specific characters that are built for their personalities. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of players of the game so far. Uh, explain to me about some of the balancing here, because one of the first things that struck me is... Uh, as you ramp up more players, there are more locations, but we don't get more time on the timer. The Blessing Absolutely deck always not. still has 30 cards. And yeah. at first I was like, well, wait a minute. Is that is that broken? What's going on with the balancing? Uh, and also, Mike, some of the extreme asymmetry between the different characters. You know, I first started out playing a sorcerer, and I never had to recharge my spells. It happened automatically. So then when I go over to, I think his name is Ezreal, yep, uh, Ezreal. suddenly those roles are so crucial um, yep. You know, playing, uh, using the monk, using blessings as the monk. You're like, yeah, what's the big deal? I've got eight in my deck. I can recharge them when I fight. Who cares? You know, spend your blessings, everyone. Look how easy it is. Uh, there's just so much asymmetry. Uh, 
and I can't imagine that it was easy to balance or to get yeah. everything to play well together. T- talk yeah. a bit about how that was. Well, there, let me let me tackle those in two parts. Um, mm-hmm. So, so the first one, uh, there's probably um, of the people who've now played it, probably five thousand people have gone through the mental calculation that you just did, which <laughs> is which is that's ridiculous. Of course, you would have to add more turns if you add more players, mm-hmm. but it's wrong. And here's why. Okay. Um, so um, each additional player in the game makes every player's turns better. Right? So if you're playing solo, you need that solo character's 30 turns to do the only the things the solo character can. Right? Mm-hmm. But um, so the solo character can only get through three locations in the game because they're closest to them to the number of well there's there's 30 cards to explore and there's 30 turns in the game right so uh, maybe i can win or maybe i can't right because explore doesn't mean success all the time right as you start adding players you start adding locations and so you get more cards 10 essentially 10 cards per player but every player is is helping every other player with what they do, and so success starts to go up quite a bit. And so, no longer like in the in the solo game, the the primary threat is will you die, right? Um, in the six player game, the primary set threat is will you succeed by finding the villain before the clock runs out, right? Um, those are really different uh, loss conditions, but they're 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 essentially on a on a scale or on a, a slider, I guess. And so, what it turns out is that six player games really are this razor edge of we have to use everything we possibly can all the time, or we are just you know if you lay back, if you say no, I'm not going to do all the things I can do you're almost guaranteed to lose. Mm-hmm. But you're probably not going to die because you're only going to get five turns, six at most, to to um, to do that stuff on, right? So, I mean, it's also nice because the game doesn't take much longer, right? I, mean, I do love that, yes, absolutely. I mean, it obviously takes longer. A six-player game takes longer than a one-player game only for one reason, essentially, which is player who's playing the solo game isn't talking to himself <laughs> right the the amount of dialogue that players generate is the only thing that lengthens the game mm-hmm. right um so i mean it was <laughs> i did some pretty complex math on that and when i realized i never had to adjust the length of the game um uh, or at least i didn't feel i did that was such a relief as a game designer because it was one of those moments when you kind of know you did your job right. right um so as far as characters go um the idea was to make everybody bad at something something specific right mm-hmm. um or maybe several somethings so valeros the fighter doesn't lose a lot of fights but if he walks up, flips a card, and it's explosive runes, his hand is in his, his discard pile. Mm-hmm. Right? He has no other trick. Um, he has a very low hand size because he can't take, he, he doesn't lose too much when he is damaged. 
Um, but that means he has very few resources when he wants to do something dramatic, right? Um, so, you know, a character like uh, Sajin, who's got, uh, he's the monk who's got um, eight blessings in his deck and can play all of them at once on a single combat check, uh, or not all of them, but as much as he has in his hand, a single combat check, people look at it like, oh my god, he's generating such high numbers, and then you look back and you wonder why you lost the game playing Sage, and it's because those blessing cards you threw out can't be used to explore. And right. so, and so I think the goal was to essentially cripple every character so that, uh, with one exception, which I'll get to in a second, the goal was to cripple every character so that you needed some other character that's sitting across from it in some sort of, uh, game balance circle. I guess we never made that circle, but you can imagine that it could exist. But the character, the character in the center is Lem, who's the, the halfling bard, whose only real power is that he's pretty good at everything. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, his job is he's got some of this kind of spell, some of that kind of spell, some of this kind of weapon, some of that. He's got fairly a- average roles that he's making all the time. It's not good. It's not great, but it's, it's always good enough or at least it's hopefully good enough. He can get the right cards in his hand because he can swap them out of his discard pile. You know, his, his job in the game is to be the antithesis of the, I need to play just this type of character. Right. And I sure hope I don't run into anything that I can't deal with. Right. And so, and that's a very comforting thing. And we were trying to decide, you know, which characters went in the base set, which characters went in the, um, the expansion pack, the character add on deck. And there, there were, you know, the fighter, the cleric, the, the wizard, the, the rogue, those were all going in the base set. And we sort of were like, okay, well, who, who makes the jump into the base set? And we're like, wow, we got to include Lem because they're going to be players who don't want to make the choice of what they do wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, I think that, that, that was, that was crucial. And now, you know, as we get to expand this, we've got other, you know, tricks up our sleeve, other, other combinations of things that characters can do that we really want to try out. And, uh, um, like I've been, a, a number of people have noticed online and in conversations with me that there is no character with the craft skill in the game. Oh, I haven't noticed that. Okay. That, cause I presume but, that's a subset of intelligence. I, I see yeah, it. it. I see it, it on is. cards. Right. right. But you never see like, where is the character with the craft skill? Right. And I'm like, well, that's coming because that's going to be an important skill to have. And nobody else in the game currently has it. So the character who's really good at that skill is going to be bad at some other things. And you're going to have to adjust for that. Well, so, so let's, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I'm done. Well, let's talk about this then, because I, I, you guys are very upfront about it being kind of an episodic, modular uh, yeah. product. I mean, I, I don't. Nobody should open this and think, "Wait a minute, I've got all these empty spaces in the box." You're, you're very clear. There's more stuff. Um, so I, I feel like there's a lot of business decision uh, in, in a way in this box. I, I see it, and I can get my character up to a certain point. But now, and this is where I am now. I'm kind of hanging fire, waiting for. The, yeah. the next uh, adventure well, set. That's true. In fact, um, 
I haven't really said this before, but but I was the person who pulled back from the monthly model and said uh, that I didn't think people would play this game enough to justify a monthly schedule. And boy, was I wrong. Right? <laughs> I mean, like I was wrong. I like like I was wrong in the sense that I should have been arguing. Uh, against monthly for a weekly schedule right of releases and it's it's crazy i i you know we when we played the game that is we played every scenario all the way through and you, granted we were play testing so that slows us down a little bit um it took us like three months to get through the whole adventure path um and so we sort of extrapolated that to mean that people would probably play you know, maybe, uh, you know, four or five, six games a month, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, in the first week, I, I saw threads that began after 30 plays. Here are the conclusions that I, I have come to. And I was like, wow, <laughs> people are, people are, it's not, it's just, you can't tell that stuff when you're playtesting. And you're playtesting, even if you've got, like, we had 300 playtesters, even if you've got all those people playing, it's still a bit like, um, well, I was going to say, it's a bit like work. I'm not sure that's the right phrasing, but it's, it's, a, it's much more of a, we have to get through this, not we want to get through this, right? Um, because we have to test everything. We have to look in every corner and try every card combination and stuff like that. When people are just playing recreationally, uh, Boy, are they, they're much faster. The other, the other big thing, by the way, um, and this is something that I learned. I had no idea this was true. Um, we played every game, uh, during the playtest with black and white cards. Um, and you're thinking, what's the, what's the possible difference there? Well, it meant that card sorting and setting up the game and stuff like that took much longer in our playtests. Now we're seeing that people can set up a game and, you know, three to five minutes and we were spending you know like 15 minutes to put <laughs> well together. i certainly because i'm very aware at first it would take me forever to pull out the locations and to see yep. okay this yep. many monsters but i got a system down you know i could yeah. tear through that and get it going yeah. real quick we, we, we never developed that system right because we didn't like we didn't even know the system was possible because every card looked identical Right, 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 and there were there, and we were playing with all the sets at once. So every there were a thousand cards. There were you know eleven 1, hundred cards, and so so what we've learned is that um, this game is played not not the actual gameplay, right? The actual game takes as long as we thought it took, mm -hmm. but but the gameplay, the 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 we sit down and we're going to play a session tonight is so much faster than we were aware of. Right. And um, and obviously, if we'd known that, then we would have said, well, gosh, if somebody gets together for a day, even just a day, they can burn through the entire adventure that comes in burnt offerings. Right. And well, uh, that was very surprising. And, I, I, you know, I feel really bad about it in some sense. But, you know, we're kind of locked in for now. Um, maybe in the future we'll we'll try to be able to get more content out. Well, I'm at the point now where I, I've got um – uh, I, I've got several groups, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll play one week and then the next week it'll be new people or only one people who was there last week will show up. So I've pretty much resigned myself at this point to keeping a piece of paper with characters and their inventory and who has what and who's what level and who's done which adventures. Um, so, uh, you know, as, as a boxed set, uh, 
it's, I, you know, I'm, I, I still feel like there's more play value rather than just I've leveled up these three characters who we play normally with, and now we're just waiting. You know, there are ways right. to go back and try new characters. Right, um, and I think I think that's crucial. I mean, I um, found that um, when we started our 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 thirty adventure campaign, the thirty scenario campaign. I started with one character, and you know I liked it, but I was just like, you know what? I don't think this is me. Yeah. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put this character down. I'm going to start a new character. You guys are all, you know, you guys have all checked boxes up. You know, you know, you've got like four, four or five boxes checked on your sheet. I'm just going to start from scratch and try to catch up. And then I found that. Um, that um, I can't remember what I switched from. I think I was playing. I don't remember. I don't remember who I was playing first, but I, I switched to Harsk, which was which became the right. character that was that was right for my play style. And then you know, and then I I, I kind of wanted to go back and play the adventures that I didn't play with Harsk again. This time with Harsk, and so my developers made some new characters. Uh, and and had me run through that again, and that was that was good, right? That was good. And I said, okay, now I'm playing the deck that suits me. Let's now I feel like I, I get what this character does, and and that that was that was pretty fun. I, I think though that um, you know the episodic nature really wants more content. I mean, I, I well, one thing that's happened that I really like is a whole lot of fan created content. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, yeah, obviously you've given people a box full of components that if they want, they they can rearrange uh, and play as they want. And I know too, like you're not you're always enforcing permadeath. If you play and your main character dies and you refuse to accept that, you know what? Don't kill your character. Uh, well, I have no idea. Um, I've seen characters die mm-hmm. in front of me, right? I've seen I, I've experienced that myself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've seen a lot. And if I saw somebody show up with a character that they, <laughs> they you're going to put your foot down, Mike, you're not going to let that happen. <laughs> not in my group. We play hardcore, right? I mean, you, uh, uh, my friend, Eric, um, who weirdly, uh, just by random chance, uh, uh, on Facebook right now, sent me a note saying, well, we have finished a run through of all the Pathfinder scenarios. We want more. And I'm like, I'm on a podcast right now talking about that, that very thing. Um, he came over and, um, and he's from Alabama. So he came up to Seattle and, and we were doing stuff and he, um, he came and we experienced our first losses, both as, we lost the scenario and we lost me. <laughs> like I died in it. And I'm like, Eric, why'd you have to show up? Right. But, but you know, that character crossed that character off. I never played him again. Well, here's where one of the things too, there, there are just a few things that I, I don't quite understand why you have done this. For instance, yes. Please ask. There, Please ask. Okay, I, I love the fact that there are, are subclasses and they're mutually exclusive. I pick when I hit a certain level one subclass or the other. I hate that you're putting those in front of me now with yeah. no possible way for me to achieve I those. I know. I, know. I feel like it's a big tease. I mean, it's effective it by God. It's effective to what most most good teases uh. are. Here's the problem, right? Yes. I mean, so the original plan for that was 
um, to put those in Adventure, what is it, 4. Uh, either Adventure 3 or 4. Am I, I not going to get those until Adventure 3 or 4, really? I'm not getting those. Those aren't part of Skinsaw Murders because that's what I was holding out for. <laughs> so I was going to get uh, those soon. <laughs> no, you get it at the end of Adventure 3. But, uh, uh, but, but here's the thing, right? Yeah. Um, um, well, first off, you could write a scenario right now that said <laughs> that said at the end of this adventure, at the right. end of the scenario, you get a roll card. <laughs> but um, but uh, why hasn't somebody already done that? By the way, I'm sure that'll show up right the day after this podcast goes live. <laughs> so yeah, someone a, get on that and post it so I can play it. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So anyway, um, uh, well, I mean, it was a this was a packaging decision more than anything else. I mean, we we realized that if we put them in uh, Adventure Three, and you never bought Adventure Three, right? Right. You never make that transition. Like you never get to see that um, that uh, that that progression of your character. And in fact, if for some reason you skipped Adventure Three entirely, you just went one, two, four, five, six, and you never got the roll card. Right. Um, You'd be messed up, like like the t- when you went into Adventure Six. That those adventures are meant to be tackled by people who have roll cards, right, right. right? And so, um, so I mean, we I, I remember saying the the day we made the decision to put them in the base set, people are going to look at these and go, seriously, you're just dangling this in front of me, <laughs> right? And so, what I've suggested to people, mm-hmm. it's not it's not the the thing I you know it's not it's not literally playing by the rules. But what I've suggested to people is put aside the stuff that you've done for burnt offerings, the characters that you went through, make some new characters, and then put the roll cards on them, and just see how they play. You know, check whatever boxes you want to check, right? Um, just to see how they play, because when you get there. Uh, when you get to the point, um, uh, I guess around Christmas, uh, when you get to start using them, that's a permanent choice for your character. And so, so give it a test run. Give it a test run. Just see if you. I mean, the 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 drunken master character for Sajin mm-hmm. is a really risky character to play. Like, I mean, Sajin on his own is a risky character to play, but but once he throws the drunken master template on I'm sorry a uh, roll card on himself um, he's he can he can wipe himself out uh, but you know so you want to find out whether or not that's the one you want to pick right uh, um, and so I definitely think that that playing with those now is not the worst thing in the world right. uh, just you know don't play I mean don't 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 just start checking boxes. On the character you're going to bring into the Skinsaw Murders, because right. you'll wipe because you'll wipe out the scenario and you'll wonder why the game isn't fun anymore. Okay, here's right. another thing. Then am I am I really supposed to be writing on these cards? I can't okay. bring myself to do no, it. No, no, and I get it. I get it. That was a that was a decision that we were like, okay, seriously, are people really going to do this? And the answer is some people have really done it, and they've gone, you know, seriously, I'm going to. This is my Harsk. It's in my box. Mm-hmm. He's going to be my dwarf. And, he's, and if anybody picks them up, they're going to know the decisions I made. I mean, is anybody really going to write, um, you know, in, in their Risk Legacy box, is anybody going to take the, the pen out and write uh, Chickville on on the middle of Asia? 
<laughs> right. Of course. Like, it's, your, it's, your, it's your game. You got the reward. Aren't you going to write that on the middle of Asia? Right, right. Uh, so, so well, but here's like the it. thing, though. I, uh, you know, when my sorceress died, I, I hadn't written on the box, but I, on the card, but I had put little pieces of tape on her, sure. specifically thinking, okay, maybe she'll die. And now the tape has left gunk on the card, oh, no. and I tried to get it off with my fingernail. That made it worse. I, you know, she's still playable. She's fine. I, I have to resell your game. That's the thing. Well, no, I'm never going to resell <laughs> my game. But I kind of feel like she's constantly she she's. From that yeah. death, she's permanently scarred. I mean, she can be replayed again. Let me think about death. Um, <laughs> right, so, exactly. Uh, well, I mean, a lot of people have gone the opposite route. So I don't uh, – this is me. A lot of people are really passionate about this subject. I am not. Um, there are players who sleeve every card game they get, Right. right? I do not do that. None of my games are sleeved. And so there are people who are right now nodding their heads and saying, uh, Selinker, this is why you don't understand us as human beings. This is why you missed the mark. So, so, and I'm like, seriously, I understand that you should totally sleeve your cards. You should totally get long boxes and put, put them in and throw the tray out. Right. But at minimum, those people, you know, if they're not going to do that, um, you should sleeve the character cards, right? I mean, it doesn't hurt. There's only 11 characters in the game, and uh, and so that's 11 penny sleeves. And, I, uh, I have ruthlessly taunted my my friends who sleeve their cards. I make yeah, fun of good. them. I me mock too. them mercilessly, and I think they deserve it. So when I, we first I, broke out the Pathfinder, uh, and I'm handing out cards and saying, okay, you know, if we get this far, we're going to check one of these boxes. I haven't quite thought out what we're going to do here. Uh, and one of my friends was like, do you need some card sleeves? Uh, and he's one of the guys who sleeves his cards, so I'm constantly making fun of. Yeah. And uh, sure enough, he had them in his car. He ran out. He right. got me you know, six right. card sleeves. That's the number sure. of characters the game can support. Yeah. So I haven't sleeved all the cards, but for the yeah. first time in my life, I have yeah. sleeved six of my cards. That's yeah. right. No, I've seen a lot of people do it. Now, I mean, we got used to it because – and I, this is ridiculous, and no one else has this experience, right? But we got – used to it because we were playing on playtest cards, which were just, you know, printed off at Kinko's in black and white. Mm-hmm. So, what the hell? We don't mind. Right. <laughs> we don't mind writing on those. Those aren't even going to be the rules tomorrow, right? <laughs> you know, and so, because we write on them just to change, like, what does the card do? And so, um, I was I was pretty prepared, though, for the passion that people brought to their emotions on that decision right i mean there's some people who were like how could you misunderstand your player base so much right and i was like i don't misunderstand them my uh my thought is that uh this game has permanent consequences and you can either play the game like it has permanent consequences or you can play the game in a way that you like you said earlier like nobody's going to enforce permadeath on you well, I am. Like, I mean, in my house, in my house, you're going to write on your cards. Right. Because that's how we play. Now, not everybody has access to another copy of the game. I have several of them. Ah, <laughs> no so, wonder. There you go. I see. So, so, I mean, I have a deck of, I have a box. So, so this is truth be told. Um, we have a box that is, um, is designed to be marked up. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we play with it and like if you make a change in it, 
Like you, you, you make character turn that thing. And then we have another deck that we keep, another box that we keep open that's designed for, um, for, uh, what I would call one-time use, right? Like we're demoing the game, Mm -hmm. for example, or we're, um, we're, we're introducing somebody to the game because your first time through, maybe you don't want to make choices that affect you forever. That's why, uh, there are no, um, like the first scenario you play doesn't say you get a power feed, right? Right. It says draw some cards from the, draw a card from the box because you're not yet used to it. You don't know what decisions you'd be making. You don't right? want to commit. You don't want people to have to commit that early. Sort of let them get used to the system a little bit. But right? once they get into once they get into burnt offerings and skin saw, I mean, you're on a road, and uh, you know, you, yeah, it'll change how you play. Because you'll make those decisions. Now, I mean, if for some reason you want to play the game, you want to play through the entire adventure path so many times that you use all the characters, right? Like if you you have a group of four people and you play your third time through, well, now you're looking at a character that has been marked up. I mean, if you like it that much. For God's sake, get erasable pencils, right? Get 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 erasable pens. I and mean, I can tell you from that, experience, don't use electrical tape directly on the card. <laughs> well, I mean that is that is solid advice for your listeners. I would not have done that. It was so convenient but, though. You just snip off a little black square. It fits right, right over the square and aesthetically pleasing. But then when I died, there there was a gunk there. But uh, yeah, yeah it's I do. Just a memory. It's just a memory. Right, it's like a, a little little emotional scar. That Fair enough. It's like when you cast a resurrection spell on someone, they lose a point of constitution. They lose a point of constitution. Yeah. Right. <laughs> By the way, when the when the raised dead spell in our in whatever it is set four. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Comes out. Um, maybe set five. I can't remember. Uh, I'm sure we will get like complaints about how you don't lose you know you don't lose a level you know it's like no <laughs> it's just there to make sure you don't lose your fifth level you know your right, your right. your character you wrote 15 times on right well so. that by the way mike i uh i'm okay with the sorceress dying now i, I because I, yeah. I i don't know how i'm gonna feel if it happens you know three or four scenarios yep. in. like if it happens yep. in december i yep. may not be quite so forgiving of this permadeath mechanic. i i know i know i know yeah. well like i said nobody's coming to your house um and and demanding but you know seriously you get that the the real loss actually isn't going to be the character right the real loss is going to be the stuff right right there's a tuned deck exactly yeah exactly like you've gotten it to the point where it now uh hums i have the blessings in there i want and now oh more blessings of the gods great i'll give you an example yeah i'll give you an example of that right it's like um uh the the monk some people play the monk with a whole bunch of blessings and cards that banish, mm-hmm. right? So that they can get down to, oh, I just, sure. got a bunch, just got a bunch nice. of blessings. Yeah, put right? a bunch of potions in there and then tune exactly. after the blessings. Okay. Exactly. Now, I mean, that that is a, that, I don't know if that's a winning strategy, but it's something that people have tried, right? Um, well, the point being, um, it really matters when you're playing that character, which blessings you have in your hand. Right. Right. And so if just the, you know, if you, if you got to the point where you, okay, I don't care that I lost all the things I was going to banish because I can go get more things I was going to banish. Mm-hmm. 
but I do care that I lost all of those good blessings because that's where my strength was coming from. Right. Right. That's, that's where, that's where I was getting the effects that I wanted. And so, so really what you're losing when you die is your, your likelihood of pulling your card combos. Right. Which is and, what makes it so appealing to us deck building game. Yeah. Games. I mean, it's, yeah. it's so, it's so hard because like this isn't a deck build, deck building game, except in the sense of you look at it over an entire year. Right. And the thought of, you know, only getting your engine running, you know, running at the highest level, you know, a couple months in, uh, means that if you lose that engine at that point, uh, you get, you get right. really sad. But, you know, um, we'll see if that actually happens. Like we have no data on this, right? What sure. we have is we have playtest data, but we have no data that, that tells us what people will do, you know, at the time they pick their role cards and what happens if their character dies three adventures in and, and, and all that. Um, this is going to be a really interesting winter because <laughs> we, we just, we just don't know, right? I mean, it's not that, it's not that we didn't test the game. We tested it a whole lot, but we can't test emotion, right? So I, I am curious a little bit about this winter. What can you tell me about what is in store? Like we, we, sure. we get through uh, the burnt offering stuff. You, you get the medallion, yep. and there's this sense of really that's all I get. But that's clearly right. that's going to plug into something later. I mean, I, I clearly get the sense that there are all kinds of sockets where things are going to be plugging in. That's um, right. What um, can you yes. tell me about what what will be seen in Skinsaw Murders? I have no problem talking about that. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, well, first off, um, the sort of weirdness of the game is about to ramp up quite a bit. Um, I've gotten some criticism, and I think it's potentially valid, that the first the first adventure, I mean, Local Heroes being the, the wild, different one, um, does sort of just get you used to the kind of gameplay that the game is going to give you without giving you potentially as much variation as you might like. Right, and that's because we're not done. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a very conscious decision, um, but uh, the so what's going to happen from here on in is you're going to find uh, scenarios where the things you have to do are not not at all what you expected you had to do. Um, you're going to get cards that attach themselves to you, and and well, I mean, I shouldn't really go into what the mechanics are, but 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 like you're going to get you're going to get all sorts of different. Um, different ways to play that that you know force you to reanalyze what you're what you have in your deck. Um, the 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 other thing that's going to happen is a fairly significant ramping up of difficulty, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like the first adventure is designed. I mean, there's lots of people who are losing games, but. You know, I mean, the numbers don't seem like they're out of whack with the base set at all. Like, I don't think there's anything in the other than the villains in the base uh, in um, burnt offerings that's much worse than just running into a hill giant or a specter, right? But that's coming. Um, and as you start to actually lose cards from your game, which is a mechanic that nobody's seen yet, but basically uh, it's been explained that that you start culling cards. 
from that's the what I wondered about. So it's not yeah. just a matter of, of making a bigger set. It's certain yeah. cards come in and knock out the earlier scenario that's cards. Right. That's right. Okay. The, okay. The exact rule is that when you banish a bane that's uh, basic after uh, – I'm trying to remember scenario two – I'm sorry, adventure two or adventure three. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, you start discarding them from the game forever. Right, oh, the, so it still gets into the mix, but once I've processed it once, it's gone. That's right. So, and so, ah. and and then you have the option to do that with boons, right? So, so if something leaves the game, you can go. Well, you know what? I don't ever want to see it again. Sure. Um, I don't. I don't need this potion of vision anymore. I, I don't want to see it anymore in the game. And so, well. The, the thing about that is that as that process starts to occur, the the average difficulty of the game starts to ratchet. Right, right. right? And, I mean, what's coming is some, I hope, really scary stuff. Like, I mean, I remember uh, when we hit uh, Adventure 5, um, which is way down the line, and it just started to tear us to shreds. And we were like, wow, we we made some terrible decisions earlier that we wish we had made over, right? And so um, I guess, uh, I mean, in terms of thematic elements, um, Skin Summers is very uh, ghost story, murder mystery kind of adventure. And then um, then after that, uh, there's there's a sort of, uh, war against the ogres kind of adventure where where what you meet is a lot of really weird ogres one of the scenarios called them ogres ain't right because <laughs> because they're all kind of uh mutated by inbreeding mm-hmm. and so you're gonna see some weird weird stuff in there and so forth and so on i mean it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger so I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I know what it all is, uh, but we're going to find out whether people uh, really find that the the second adventure feels feels really different. I think it does. Uh, I think that the the ghost story theme is is really really solid for this adventure, and so um, I, I really like it. And I hope that uh, when it comes out in mid October, we're um, you know everybody's singing a different tune about what what the game feels like mm-hmm. so well, I, I love that you touched on local heroes because I, I really did appreciate you, you know, go through the basic scenario you do the I think the first one is it attack on sandpoint you do yeah, that yeah. and then you have local heroes and you sort of get a glimpse of oh you know this can feel a little different you know normally as I mentioned before you are looking for that villain but there's a different kind of a race against the clock in local heroes and it creates this thematic sense of you know, these exploding goblins just came in and attacked us. Now we've got to get our eyes. And then we're setting out into these strange new places like the, you know, when you first have to deal with the glass works or that, that horrible shrine to Lamashtu, which Pretty I bad. never want to have to go there. I cannot stand that place. A lot. No, um, I don't want to. <laughs> I'm going to make someone to else go there. Well, what do you see? That's the other thing that you'll be surprised, well, not surprised, but you'll, you'll see is that the locations start to get, like, the bad locations start to get really bad. Well, I do uh, love that. Like, I love, you know, the nettle maze, for instance. I yeah. love how different that feels. Getting yeah. stuck in the treacherous cave, which at first, you're like, oh, you know, I've got to make that check, big deal. But when you see how that can really bite you in the ass, I mean... When the harpy shows up, 
and pulls you into the treacherous cave. Oh. You're you're one of those sadistic game masters, aren't you? Who well, loves subjective oh, people? <laughs> no, oh, this is a worthwhile question, right? Um, so I had this, uh, I had the opportunity to play um, my friend Mike Rahulik's game Thornwatch, which isn't out yet, and uh, um, and we talked about style of of game mastering, and and I I noted that you know he and many other game masters are the their goal in the game is to make sure everybody has a good time. That's my goal too, right? But um, and and so they're not, you know, they're they're making the dice roll the way the dice need to roll. They're they're changing their plot direction to make sure that you know maybe we don't need five vampires here because the party's beat up. What if, what if it was three? Right? I'm not that guy. Um, I am. I wrote a book uh, in uh, my days at Wizards of the Coast called The Book of Challenges. And I made it very clear that I treat game sessions as if the players just keyed my car. (laughs) And so, you know, I mean, the goal of the game is to flat out beat whatever it is I put in front of you. And I've already thought through what I think are all of the consequences. That doesn't mean I haven't set a fair challenge, right? I mean, I I try to like aim for something that can be beat some, a fair, fair percentage of the time, but, but I am trying to beat you. Right. And so that's why this game is such an expression of that personality that I have. Um, it, it very much is the game is trying to kill you now. And so, uh, that reflects my game mastering style. And so I think that's uh, going to be pretty apparent in the upcoming adventures. Right, when, so it sounds like burnt offerings is trying to lull people into a false sense of security. This, well, it is of, oh, this game a, isn't so bad. Just some <laughs> adorable goblins. Right, they're cute. On, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they happen to be on fire every now and then. Right, but, but you know, uh, no, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, I, we'll see what happens, right? I mean, I don't know. As much as anybody else, I am mystified about what is coming next. In that, I mean, I know what all the cards say. But I don't know what happens when they meet the players. Well, we, we certainly look forward to finding out, and I know that I speak for a lot of us when I say uh, I wish mid-October would hurry up and get here, and uh, then we'll take a look at Skinsaw Murders. Well, so. we can get back on at some point and, and talk about what what uh, what your reactions were and stuff like that. To these I, I would because love to catch up with you after I've uh, gotten a little farther into to what you guys are releasing. Absolutely, Mike. I think that'd be cool, because I, I don't... I mean. I can't wait to find out. I can't wait to see what players' reactions are to the different things that we're throwing at them. All right. So, uh, Mike, thank you for talking to me. Skinsaw Murders out in mid-October. Okay. Now, here is where I'm about to flip my lid and just be a total fanboy for however much time we have left on this podcast. <laughs> Holy cats. I'm so in love with this next thing. Uh I, I just I don't I don't even know where to start. I'm just this thing has just I, I I literally just sit there and read through the decks of cards. I mean I've, I love playing this, but I love just picking up the cards and read through. So so Rob, because I can't talk without blathering like a, a, an enthusiastic schoolgirl, why don't you tell folks what is this Sentinels of the Multiverse game that you've gotten me hooked on? You jerk. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I. 
No, no, I, I got hooked on it too through the forum, and um, I think it was Mark L that originally uh, turned me on to it. But I too uh, would have a hard time not gushing all over uh, Sentinels. It is it is a fantastic game. It is uh, not a deck building game like the ones we've really been talking about, but it's it's a very com- component-based game where there are several decks of 40 cards that apply to different comic book characters that have, which is important to say, it's not a licensed property, which is very, very important. I think that's really a great idea, whereas most people want it to be a DC game or a Marvel game. They definitely do their job of hinting at things where you're like, okay, yeah, right, that's Batman, or okay, that's Legacy, that's Superman, or whatever, but it's not. And I think that's really nice because it lets them go in directions. They're not essentially hemmed in by the property. They can just kind of go wild with different ideas. Um, but what it is, it's, it's a component case game. You pick your character. That's your 40 set of cards with unique mechanics for your character. You then, the play group will pick a villain, which is also a specific set of cards. will have its own set of rules and win condition and a lose condition and that sort of thing. And then there's also an environment that kind of affects... You can kind of imagine, okay, all these heroes are fighting against this supervillain, but where are they fighting? Are they fighting on a Mars base? Are they fighting, you know, in, in prehistoric times? And it just, the thing that just works about this game is you combine all these things together and you blend them together in a pot and you're playing through and you just can't help but experience the story of the game, uh, which is which is really what brings it forward. It really... I was reading your review, Tom. I think it, I really agree. It, it just it lends itself to these kinds of superhero moments. Like I remember our first game where um, I believe I was also Wraith in our first game, and it came down to the wire. We're trying to, to stop this rampaging robot factory that's dumping out robots every single turn and firing Omnitron. lasers. Yes, Omnitron. And is you know, rampaging through Metropolis. And it comes down to the Wait a minute, hold on. Oh, I'm so disappointed in Rob. Where are you rampaging through? Uh, Metro City. uh, (laughs) I forget the name. I'm so sad. (laughs) You're making greater than games, the developers. You're making them cry. Rob, Metropolis is where that Superman douchebag runs around. Yeah, yeah, I know, (laughs) I know, I know. Omnitron was rampaging through Megalopolis. That's it, Megalopolis. (laughs) I apologize. All right, so what, to everybody, what was but, the peak moment that you have mysteriously relocated to a DC Comics property? Yes, yes. Well, and I mysteriously <laughs> relocated it on Wraith, which is Batman, but a girl. And, and, and No, has, okay, I disagree there, but go ahead. Well, she's got all of her gadgets, and she's got her Batarang, so to speak. I mean, It's, it's Razor Ordnance. It's not a Batarang. It doesn't oh, fly yes, back. Oh, yes, yes. And it looks nothing. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wink, wink, nod, nod. But but it, it, is, it is different, which, you know, it is, they're not just mimicking it. No, I, I absolutely back up my original statement that this gives them room to breathe that other games don't. Well, to be fair, you do see tropes. I mean, they're definitely yes. like their counterparts to, to things, but they just have such a unique uh, tweak to them. The Wraith is not some brooding, hulking, uh, angst-ridden rich man. Uh, she's, she's this cute little rich girl whose parents left her a trust fund, and she's really good inventing gadgets. And yeah, it's clearly a Batman counterpart uh, mm-hmm. but it just has its own unique charm i find uh, yeah so so i'm sorry so tell me uh, your, your peak moment uh versus omnitron you're the so, wraith in megalopolis yeah we're barely hanging on there i think uh tempest which is kind of this, this watery summons the power of the elements character i think tempest has already been knocked out mm-hmm. um i think we had uh iron legacy also or legacy also 
And but in any case, so it comes down to the final moment. There, part of the environment is there some some cops that are already out trying to help, and they end up you know plucking a few bullets here and there at small things, but not really a big deal. But Omnitron's about to go over. But at the same time, this renegade subway train is about to go crazy and, and plow through the citizenry. So Wraith kind of has to make the hard call and goes over and, and <laughs> ends up basically being knocked out to try to stop the train. But it's just enough to buy that last second so that the the cops could essentially come in and, and starf the win from the heroes and ends up doing the last point of damage on Omnitron to essentially win the game. So it's just a, uh, it's just it's just crazy stories as you're playing that you're really kind of it's a very uh, it's, it really lends itself to to storytelling, which is a really nice mechanic to have. So one of one of the uniquely appealing things about Sentinels of the Multiverse uh, is that. There, there's so much narrative here, but unlike a lot of other narrative-heavy games, there's a lot less junk in the way. And and what I am thinking of specifically, there's a, a, a really popular co-op game that is also vividly narrative called Arkham Horror. And Arkham Horror, I can enjoy it, and I certainly love the the Lovecraft mythos, but there is just so much junk and fiddly pieces and add-on boards and little cards and bigger cards and character sheets with token markers and, and monsters moving around the board. It is so overwhelming, and there's just so many bits that go into creating the narrative, whereas in Sentinels of the Multiverse... The, the setup time in this is negligible. Like Rob said, you each take a hero deck, you put out a villain deck, you put out an environment deck, you're good to go. Um, there are markers that I never even use. At first, I was very studious about making sure each marker goes in its pile for different categories. You never really need those. Uh, it is such a straightforward, simple game in terms of mechanics. Um, simple game in terms of setup, but just because of the imaginative uh, dynamics for each of the different villains, uh, and for the way the environment cards interact with the villains and hurt you or help you, and for the way the different heroes interact, uh, there's just so much n- rich narrative possibility there uh, that you just go straight to it. It's like a shot of narrative straight to the veins. Uh, it's not cut with anything. Um, and it's a shorter game, too. Like Arkham Horror, good lord, you're going to be there all night, most likely. Yeah. Uh, so going back to to the comment we made about kids before, um, I like this one because so say a competing product that's kind of in the same wheelhouse for me is the Lord of the Rings uh, cooperative card game. Mm-hmm. It's kind of very similar and it does some decent storytelling, but as you're saying, it also has a lot of fiddly bits that get in the way, and you kind of start being more concerned about the math and paying attention to you know who's crossing what river and where the trolls are. Uh, but what's really nice is this game is just. It's very compartmentalized, kind of like I remember the the awe moment I had when I first played uh, Cosmic Encounter, where it's just like it's ah. you just grab a few different unique bits. You're not using everything in the in the game, but you just kind of pick your set of whatever and you go and play the game. And it's very different. The next thing you want to do is just jump out again and play it again. But what I like about this one is even though there's all these different decks that have very unique mechanics and villains, and you kind of shuffle it up, there's virtually no setup time. Unlike the Lord of the Rings, where you're kind of building decks and disassembling decks, it's just like nope, nope. Right. We're gonna pick hero, 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 villain, bim, go, and it's just it's just great. It works. It's great for for playing with kids. It's a quick game, in and out, uh, setup time. It just I ah, can't say enough good things about this thing. Uh, do you have the Rook City expansion? I do. Oh, you jerk! Yeah. Where did no, you sorry. get it? How did you get that? Well, I kind of I think I got 
sucked into this a little bit earlier in the year. It, it was it was actually a research when the forum game started popping up. Um, but it was mentioned earlier in the year, and I kind of I, at that point I was feeling bad because I missed out on the Kickstarter. Um, but then at that point I just went ahead and I picked up pretty much everything that was out, plus started hunting down all the um, promo stuff. So you're one of the guys who got the last copies of Rook City, so that now I can't have it. Thanks. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, you know where I'm at. <laughs> Come on over, play some Rook City. Uh, Scott, actually, what, what, explain yourself. Why haven't you played Sentinels in the Multiverse yet? What's your deal? Uh, I'm, <laughs> I am lame. Uh, no, I, uh, I'm going to play the voice of the person who doesn't know anything about Sentinels of the Multiverse, a role I'm quite uh, uh, fitting to. Sounds like you've um, done your research for the role. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know so nothing. I, I don't know anything. I, when I first saw, the first time I saw the phrase Sentinels of the Multiverse was on a quarter to three post. I thought it was a like a forum game. That's I, I thought that was the beginning and end of it. Someone made up a cool thing. Let's pretend we're all superheroes and start posting. Um, so then I, I did. I did kind of uh, look around a little bit at it, um, and uh, I'm, I'm actually not clear. Is this like a physical game, or is it like an iPad game? Or oh what is yeah. This? So just to explain for mm-hmm. everyone, so Card Hunter, which we first talked about, is a PC game. Uh, Pathfinder is a tabletop ca- card game. Uh, mm. And Sentinels of the Multiverse, also a tabletop card game. Now, they have announced there is an iPhone app that you can use to help track some of the details when you're playing on the tabletop. But they've uh-huh. also announced that sometime in 2014, some poor company, because I can imagine what a nightmare this could be, is releasing, I think it's an iPad slash iPhone version of the actual game. That okay, they I think play. that's what I had seen. I saw something about an iPad version, but you, the way you guys are talking, it seemed like you're setting things up, and I'm like, well, this sounds very interesting. I just didn't know what the what it was. Yeah, uh, and I think. You, go ahead, Rob. I was just say, I think Thomas spoke a little bit before there. You don't. You, you, it's not that you can. I highly recommend. It's called Sidekick, and it, it is a, a currently an app, and it looks like those are the guys who were given the green light. Because actually, when we're playing the forum game, you see very, very basic pictures of where I'm putting screenshots of of the sidekick app that's basically just trying to keep everybody on the same page of hit points and everything. But now that they're in the pipeline, as Tom was saying, for, for creating this, you're seeing all, I mean, it's an amazing app now. Not only is it great for record keeping, but it's got all the, the art in there and everything. Wait, wait, those pictures that you posted when, when you guys were doing a co-op game in the quarter to three forums, those mm-hmm. were from the, the iPad app. Well, and the, so there were two things. One, I had my table essentially in stasis for. That's what I like thought. A, it looked like you divided it up with tape and you set yeah, up things. Yeah, okay. my my table, my physical table was in stasis for roughly a month, and I had everything kind of broken up with painters tape to try to make it as easy. And I took pictures at the end of every turn to try to okay. help people out. But still, I also had the Sidekick app running the whole time that would keep track of all the hit points and all the critters and everything that was in play. And at the end of each turn, I would take a a uh, screenshot of my sidekick app and also post that in the, the thread. Oh. Okay, because I mainly remember the photographs of your tabletop and, and how cool that looked. Uh, for a minute, I thought that was the, the iPad app. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, the iPad app used to look very Spartan. I mean, it seemed like they, the, the, the creators of it, you know, they had something, but they, they didn't want to step on any sort of you know, legal toes, but it looks like since then there's there's been some, some handshakes and some agreements, and now now the thing I haven't even thought about putting up like a, another screenshot of our, our last turn to show it, to show people the difference. But now it's just it's night and day. It's it's not just right. like you know just words with some numbers. It's it's it looks like 
it looks like a, a video game version. I'm sure it's it's their early pieces of the video game version. Uh, have you fiddled with many of the villains? Like what what are because uh, one of the things I really like about it is how each villain, many of the villains, make it play like a completely different game. Uh, oh yeah, that's def- that's definitely something I want to hit on because it seems like there is just. It's it's not a game where just like okay some of them hit harder some of them hit weaker and you know you know they have different kinds of hit point bundles but no they they turn the mechanics on the head and, and yes I have played a couple of them um, some of the ones that really kind of stick out to me was actually one of them was the forum game that we played against the dreamer because the dreamer turns everything on its ear where you know usually there's different mechanics in how you do it but usually you're trying to defeat the villain whereas the dreamer the villain is this poor child who's being you know shaken by all these nightmares so you don't want to actually hurt the villain you're trying to stop the nightmares and and essentially so you have to target all these other things and the last thing you want to do is hurt the dreamer that has very very few hit points so you have to watch out for area effect do you you know who the dreamer is i did when we were playing it but i forgot maybe somebody didn't read the bio in the manual I know I did, but I'd forgotten. Sorry. <laughs> well, it's a it's a time travel thing. Do you remember? Yeah, I'll, I'll well, let you look that up. Well, we also did. I mean, we did a whole thematic thing where we had visionary and we had the the um, visionary is the dreamer. That's a little girl. Oh, the, that... the the dreamer is visionary. She goes back in time, and that's her her child form, plagued by the nightmares that I think eventually give her her psychic powers. Which Spoilers. I love that twist. I, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, we did the the time zone for the the setting and everything, but uh, the what, Rob? Uh, <laughs> I'm just doing this. This is kind of like an e-ping thing for me to say. I know the mythology better than you, uh, <laughs> but it's partly just because I, like I said, I've been so enamored with it lately. And there are times I just sit there and read through the cards. Uh, it's the time cataclysm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, keep in mind the last game I played of it was in the forum game, which was in. July, I think. So, I mean, it, it's, it's it's a little bit behind me. Not that it's at all forgotten. I mean, it, it is. When I think about sitting down for a game, you know, it's it's either Pathfinder or probably Sentinel. Well, Pathfinder, Sentinels, or the Star Wars game really is. Those are the three that are main rotation, and really, video games are what compete for the time for that. So, uh, and as far as my complaints about co-op too, I don't have any excuse for why I like Sentinels so so much. I mean, it, it, well, what it is is just, I just like Sentinels so much that I don't care that it's co-op. Because normally my thing is, why would I play a co-op game when I could play something with where, where the, the head-to-head dynamics offer some unique gameplay that I can't get? Because I can play Sentinel solo if, if I want. There's nothing, there's no hidden information, there's no none of the enlightened self-interest I was talking about with Pathfinder, there's no traitor mechanic. Um, I just have no defense for why I don't care that Sentinels is co-op and I still love it. Um, well, if I can try to help you out a little bit on that one... Okay. Um, I'm not sure about the no. I mean, we certainly we played games where we have open hand, but we also tend to prefer games where we have closed hand. So we don't know everything that's there, and I'm, I can't recall if the rules really tell you that you should play open or closed. They do hand. not. Yeah, they definitely do not. The rules opt out of some important things, and that's one of yeah. them. Is there's yeah, but, no there's no statement about you're not supposed to show your cards. You you can totally play with an open hand if you want, and that's that's not really something they're concerned with. I think. Yeah, whereas Star Wars definitely has. Some, you're, you're not allowed to, to communicate things, but but in any case, we play closed hand most of the time. Um, but still, going back to that idea that there seems to be an evolution of cooperative games, I think early cooperative games, it was just it was flat out in front of you. It was so obvious. It's like it's sort of like playing uh, Elder Sign, uh, the iPad game. It's like okay, you could sit down with a couple of the guys and pass the iPad around or play the physical version, but really, is it any different 
than playing it all by yourself. It just seems like you're just volunteering for downtime. Right. Whereas in Sentinels, it's it is streamlined. The mechanics are pretty pretty straightforward. There's not really any confusion, but at the same time, there's a lot of stuff kind of shifting around. And, and sure, you could kind of play it by yourself. I, I imagine it wouldn't be too much of an effort, but at the same time, you really it's there's enough fiddly bits going on that you can certainly get locked into this is what your character's doing and really right. kind of focus on what your character's doing, unlike other previous co-op games where it's just it's so dead obvious. Like, oh, I, I do this, they should do that, they should do that, and they should do that, and then it's my turn again. It's like, for the most part, some superheroes more than others, they really do take up most of your brain power to sort of track what you're going to do, what you want to do next, what cards you're looking for. Uh, it, there, there's plenty to wrap your head around if you're just playing one hero. Uh, and I've played some solitaire. You need at least three heroes for a game, uh, and that can get a bit overbearing. Um, yes, yeah, yeah overbearing is a good way to put it. Because yeah, you could play it, but it starts to feel kind of just, uh, just kind of weighty to try to do all of this at once. Where it, it feels good, and it feels like everyone is on a superhero team if you're playing a cooperative game um, all together. One thing that I like, uh, so when my sorceress died in uh, Pathfinder, my buddy I was playing with. He, uh, I was, so I died, and I kind of like, was like, well, that's that's it, the game's over. And he's like, well, do I do I have to stop playing? Can I keep playing and looking for stuff? <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> well, I guess that makes sense. Sure, I'll just sit here and wait for you. Uh, but and, and that was there, like I didn't have anything to do. I was dead. So he just sort of went around some of the safer dungeon areas and was picking up equipment, and I just had to wait for him. Uh, I like how when your hero gets knocked out in Sentinels of the Multiverse. You flip your card over, and there's new artwork for the, the defeated or incapacitated hero. And there, furthermore, on your turn, you still have three things you can do. A lot of these are kind of support options, but each character still has three unique things that he or she can do when it comes around to your turn after you've been incapacitated. Uh, so I really like that mechanic a lot. Mm, yeah, cool. and they're not they're not trivial things either. Yeah. I mean, they're, yeah. they're really thematic and they're valuable. So even when you're knocked out, you have a lot that you can contribute to the group, which is a pretty cool way of going about it. Uh, are there any of the heroes that you've tried to play and you just thought, this this is too much for me? Because there are a few that I've... I've tr- there's one I've tried that didn't work, but there are a few I've looked at and I thought, I don't think I'm ready for these heroes. Mm, I, don't, I don't know if that's... I wouldn't say it in so much of those terms, but there's definitely certain kind of hero archetypes that I'm not as fond of. It seems like there's a couple of different versions of of characters that are that are combo builders. It's you know you you have to lay out you can't really do anything, and then you slowly build and build and build, and then bam, there's your combo. Um, and Wraith kind of works that way, and, and Bunker and uh, Sub Zero, Absolute Zero. Sub Zero. Oh my God! This is not Mortal Kombat, Rob. <laughs> Sub Zero. Uh, yeah, I should I should have looked through the cards right before I did. Is is, uh, is one of your favorite characters in Sentinels Johnny Cage? Is that someone you really like playing a lot? No, no, no. I like playing Scorpion. I, I like to I like to throw out that harpoon of the Dreamer and say, "Get over here!" And it's great. Uh, before we go to a couple of our uh, new guests to talk about their favorite heroes, okay, Rob, I'm calling you out. You're on a desert island. Uh, Grand Warlord Voss has put you there. He says, from now on, you can only play, in Sentinels of the Multiverse, one hero. Who do you pick? Oh, that's crippling, because that's Mm -hmm. so much of the game. Mm -hmm. But right now, I'd say my favorite one is probably the one that I did play in the forum, which is Fnatic, because I really like 
I like her artwork. I like her feel, her theme, just the kind of phrases it lends to when she does certain things. You know, like she's got that super powerful hit when you end you, of days. Uh, well, not. I don't think I'm oh, not end that of days. One. Oh, okay. Sorry. This is the one I, I just immediately like, when when I think of fanatic, I think oh, I'll bet you pull out that end of days card at the right time. That's like a game winner. Uh, it's the. Uh, well, I don't think it's end of days. It's the one where essentially the amount of damage that you've taken, you then do to the thing you're hitting. And every time I do that one, that is that's the Hadouken move. It's just this big old blast. Look of at damage. you going to go into Mortal Kombat again. <laughs> I think, I think oh, it's yes, a Mortal Fighter Kombat reference. with Hadouken. Huh, <laughs> I trolled both of you. I trolled both of you and outed you as fighting game nerds. No, that was back in my high school days. They're way behind me. You're busted, Scott. Uh, ah! You play. Well, uh, I would. I would pick uh, if I if I get banished to a desert island. I'm uh, I'm bringing the the deck for the wraith. Uh, I just like her so much but let's then find out what the picks would be from uh artist and writer and the designers of sentinels of the multiverse i am here with christopher bedell and adam uh adam i'm gonna screw it up ribataro did i get it right that's right you got it awesome uh so you are both respectively christopher you're the writer for sentinels of the multiverse adam you are credited as the artist very much, it seems like the sort of typical comic book division of labor. I'm guessing. Absolutely. I mean, we're a, we're a, very much a team in that we co-create all the characters, the world, and the setting. And then when it gets down to the the brass tacks of creating the, of, the, of making the bits of it, Adam draws things and I write things. But I mean, that's what we've been doing all day today, actually. And uh, every five minutes, I'm up out of my chair overlooking at what Adam's doing in the art world. And I'm telling him, hey, I'm writing this kind of thing and that kind of thing. So the strength of it really comes from the, the, the work that we do side by side here. How did this collaboration come about? Uh, it's kind of just always been. Yeah, uh, Adam and I have been friends for about 20 years. And uh, we've always made stuff together. And for the first half of that friendship, the stuff we made was pretty awful because we were kids it was really really bad <laughs> yeah um and we still got most of it and we need to look at it yep yep but uh, was, uh, was this similarly themed like all along have you uh both been writing and drawing comic book theme like superhero themed stuff uh, a little bit of it yes and no i mean we've definitely done that stuff and that's definitely been something we've been interested in for a long time but we've done all sorts of stuff our 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 interests and tastes lie all over the place, and um, so this was this was more of a matter of, and the reason Sentinels the Multiverse exists is because we wanted to play a really good, in-depth, fun, cooperative superhero game, and we couldn't find anything like that, and um, so that this this was this was us making the game we wanted to play. So I, I clearly get a sense, and I want to talk more about this in a moment, that you guys have a deep affection for the superheroics of the Silver Age of comic books. That that comes through Sentinels of the Multiverse so clearly. Uh, you're obviously a talented writer and artist, respectively. Uh, but what I'm a little surprised at, and I don't I don't mean to say surprised at, what what really jumps <laughs> out at me when I play Sentinels of the Multiverse is you guys also have it seems like some specific game design smarts um, above and beyond being a talented writer and artist. Uh, how does uh, the design of this game come about as a cooperative game where each character is a deck of cards and there's this almost unlimited Lego-style mix-and-match dynamic with the hero deck, the villain deck, and the environment deck? Uh, tell me a bit about how this design came about. Well, I think that all comes back to 
exactly what we were looking for in that um, any design smarts we have comes from when we were growing up and playing games and we were both stubborn people who were unwilling to uh, leave well enough alone. If we were playing a game and there was some part of the game that was rubbing us the wrong way, we would just change it. And um, I think we left no stones unturned in our youth uh, in terms of playing games and, and changing them to fit our fit what we were looking for. And, and there were um, lots of games that were uh, explicitly designed as competitive games that we were like, no, let's just change this to cooperative yeah. <laughs> one way or another. Um, and so there's, there's, that made up for a lot of it. But um, the with Sentinels, the um, with Sentinels of the Multiverse, the original design from it came from one night in which we wrote the bulk of what would become this game in a, I think it was an eight or ten hour period. And um, the there was a notebook that we still have around here somewhere um, that we said, okay, well we're going to make the game because we didn't ever make this game with the intent of we're going to make this game and produce it and sell it. We had the idea of we're going to make this game so we can play this game. Mm-hmm. And what was important to us was, well, what are we going to put into it? Well, we really want everybody, when you're playing, each individual player should feel like a hero. They're not just controlling a hero. They are that hero. You, the things you're doing, the, the cards you're playing, the stuff that you're looking at in your hand is, is somehow empowering. Um, and when you're playing against the villain, the villain needs to seem like he's one step ahead of the heroes. And the villain needs to have... A, lots of different schemes and plots and tricks and the and then there should be a third thing one of the things that has been a core concept for us for a long time has been cool things don't happen in vacuums with the exception of space um but <laughs> the things don't just happen nowhere you don't just fight a villain and you're fighting a villain you fight a villain in a place there's something cool going on you're not just fighting a villain you're fighting a villain on an island covered with dinosaurs and there's an active volcano going off behind you that's what we want to see and so there's this there's this notebook that we wrote pages and pages of just this is what the perfect superhero game for us would have it would have these elements it would play in about this much time it would require this many players um it would do this that and the other and uh, and every single one of those, we said, okay, well, this is the you know the pie in the sky. This is the best case scenario. A perfect game has these things. And then we set about to to see what kind of game, how would one game incorporate all these elements? And it's really fun to go back and read through that document now because we have every single one of those things. Yeah. It's all in there. So that was very important to us. Uh, a thing that that for me sets Sentinels of the Multiverse apart from a lot of other card games, and um, one of the card games we'll be talking about later on this podcast is called Pathfinder. Uh, I've been playing recently a lot of a, of a game called Netrunner, which is based on an earlier Richard Garfield design. Um, one of the main appeals of Sentinels of the Multiverse is how quickly it sets up. And part of the reason for this is you guys don't have in there any of this idea of deck building, which is integral to a lot of card-based games. You have a self-contained set of cards for each character or environment. Um, and, and at first, I kind of chafed against that. I was like, well, how good can it be if I can't like modify the deck and build my own combos? I kind of felt like you took away creative control from me. Um, but it's something that has ultimately won me over for the creative focus it gives it and the decreased setup time. Uh, was that part of the design all along, this idea yeah. that you're going to fix the decks, players don't get to monkey with that? Yeah, it absolutely was because we wanted each hero to feel like themselves and and always have like their static abilities that they're able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so changing that out makes um, everyone's hero different from another one. 
Um, so it's really more of a team building strategy than it is a, you, you pick your team to complement each other's strengths. Um, and I think that that adds to the cooperative part of it as well. You, you know, you have your own limits. Your character has their limits. Um, there, you're not a one man army necessarily. You need to depend on your friends to fill in the gaps where you can't. Yeah. And there's a, there's a lot of it that comes from, you know, you, like you said, you know, we took away that creative aspect from it. Um, but as Adam mentioned in the, the team building, the creative aspect is, you know, is putting together the right superhero team to go up against a certain villain and a certain environment. Like you get to pick everything's going on on the board. Um, but a big thing that's very important to us with Sentinels, the multiverse is we were setting out to tell a story. We weren't just, we didn't want to just make a great game. We wanted to make a great game. We also wanted to tell a series of stories about, um, superheroes that were our own superheroes that every so often somebody says, Oh, this character reminds me of Batman or this character reminds me of the Hulk or whatever. And that's great. If that's what people need to help get them into our world, that's fine. But really our characters, um, uh, they're, they're, they're the stories that are coming from them are ones that we're very much interested in telling start to finish. And so to, to preserve that storytelling, it was a matter of, well, for us to, to get that story across, we kind of have to take the reins a little bit um, and, and, and lead the player to, to a place where they can see what the character is doing and then say, okay, you've been given these parameters now go crazy. And there's still a lot of control, a lot of, uh, a lot of, creative and strategic aspects that the players get to control. So, As for the world building, I, uh, I when, when I sat down to, to play this game, like I, I'd heard about, I know there's a, a card game based on the DC Comics license, there's one based on the Marvel license, uh, and there's you guys. And, and looking at, okay, which of these do I want to play? For me, uh, an early obstacle was, well, I don't, I don't know about these guys making their own superheroes. I've good, heard good things about the game, but I know who the Marvel and DC characters are. Maybe I should play that. Uh, one of the things that I was so surprised about with Sentinels in the Multiverse is that when I started playing it originally, it was from a mechanical perspective. You know, okay, I like this concept with the decks, with the villain changing how the game plays. But as I played, I started wondering about some of the powers and some of the artwork, and then my eyes would sort of go down to the bottom of the card, and I'd read some of the flavor text, and I would discover things like, oh, Legacy has a daughter, or, uh, or oh, Bunker is part of like this program that goes all the way back to the, the, the USS Monitor in the Civil War. Uh, I feel like you've tricked me into liking your, your, your universe. Uh, well, <laughs> and you I, both deserve equal credit for that, because between uh, Adam's just really charming artwork and, and, Christopher, some of your little snippets of text, uh, I just feel like I got tricked into liking your, your licensing. That was all our, part of our evil plan. <laughs> there should be uh, an Adam and Christopher villain deck, I guess. <laughs> they, they're in there. We, we, there are Adam and Christopher characters in the, the Sentinels world. Uh, they're, uh, they're hiding Wait, can you can you reveal any sort of Easter egg? What, so you guys have put oh, yourselves. Oh my God! <laughs> any sort of Easter egg. The game is full of Easter eggs because we, I mean, like we said, we've been friends for twenty years and been creating things for most of that time, and so a lot of the the stuff that we're ashamed of in our past has snuck in and, and poked its head out in some of the things. Um, we each have at least a couple of characters that parts of them were based on previous characters of ours from other things, not just comic book things. Uh -huh. um, and uh, the, there are a couple of a couple of citizens in Citizen Don's deck that look suspiciously like uh, like Adam and I. Uh, at least have looked at some point in our lives. So. That's really cute. Nice, very nice. Uh, so the the villains, uh, I love the superhero decks and, and how they each have personality, and it seems like 
the actual game mechanics are relatively simple. Um, this, I've discovered, is a very easy game to sit down and, and teach people, new players or, or veterans of, of card games, uh, partly because the hero mechanics are mostly simple. The villains, on the other hand, are, are a completely different can of worms. And mm. I find that that different villains almost play like completely different games. Uh, and there's kind of a learning curve when you pull a villain out of the, the box and you have to read the setup card and keep in mind that it can flip and there are two forms for each villain. Um, each of those feels like it's, it's dictating a new type of game for me. And for me, part of the learning curve uh, and the delight of discovery is in how each of these villains plays differently. And specifically... Uh, one I was delighted to discover for the first time last night. Uh, the Dreamer is a little girl who's sleeping, and I, I want to call her out for both the gameplay mechanics and the narrative mechanics. Uh, she's a little girl who's sleeping, and you're not supposed to hurt her. If you kill her, you lose the game. And this is uh, directly opposed to a lot of the villains where they're kind of these bags of hit points that you have to keep punching until you win the game. So I love the twist with the dreamer where you can't hurt her. And what that does is it really calls it, – it really excludes certain superheroes from being able to play because some of them are really splashy with their damage. Uh, I'm thinking of Haka or Ra, uh, and they're great at just splashing damage out there. But you can't do that with this little sleeping girl. Or at least you have to be a lot more careful about it. Yeah, right, yeah or set up some sort of con contingency to protect her, or yeah, be selective. Uh, exactly. Um, so as I was playing this, my, my roommate has an eight-year-old son, and uh, I, I love games where he's curious about what's going on, and he'll ask me questions, and he can look at them, and, and it, it grabs his imagination as well. I always feel a game has done its job if an eight-year-old and a 40-ish guy, a guy in his 40s like me, can totally be interested in it. So he's looking at the, the table, and he's asking me about this little girl, and why, are, why am I fighting a little girl? And I didn't have an answer for him. I, I didn't know. So... I go to the little bio in the manual and discover that the dreamer is the visionary as a girl and they've gone back and and there's some time travel thing but there's this connection this narrative connection between one of the heroes and one of the villains that I was I was oblivious to and then once I discovered just made it, it sort of clicked creatively in my head is oh of course this cool character her dreams are manifesting um so I love how the villains each have kind of narrative and gameplay reveals, and that must have been immensely gratifying to you guys to be able to redesign a whole new game with each villain deck. Oh yeah, no, the uh, a lot of pretty much all of the stories that are coming out in each of the expansions um, we've set up since the very beginning, uh, and it's funny because like a lot of the a lot of the the, the nightmares that you fight against in the Dreamers deck um, show up even in the very first. Uh, in the core game that came out, you know, a couple of years before the Shatter Timelines expansion, um, because we've been setting it up and kind of hinting at things, and there's still stuff that's yet to come that has, that, is, that if you look around, you can find hints of. Um, and so it's it's very fun that every time we write a villain, we get to it's we've set we've planted all these seeds and thrown out all these clues, and every time we write something, we get to say, ah, here's the thing that, <laughs> that we've been waiting to tell. Um, and it's, it's, it's really exciting to get to share those stories and to have people react so well to them. Because it's not just that we're making these things and throwing them out there, but people really have been uh, very po reacting very positively to, to the stories we're telling. Not just the game that we're making. Which we're, we love that people like the game, 
but it's it's possibly even more gratifying to have people say, wow, we love the characters and we love the stories and we're excited about what, what new story is coming out. And when they say what new story, what they mean is the new villains and the new heroes and they want to play more of the games so that they can they can learn out the story. And that's mm-hmm. that's exactly what we wanted. Some of these villains must have given you guys fits in terms of trying to make it work. And and I also – I almost want to call you two out for uh, opting out of a set difficulty level. Like I can sit down and set up a game and I can choose the straightforward heroes and a relatively easy villain in one of the more forgiving environments – uh, and you list these in the manual as far as the difficulty of the villain or the complexity of the heroes. And I can make a simple, easy game that I can just play and, and almost be assured to win. Alternatively, I can take the super complex heroes. I, I still have no idea what I'm supposed to do with Absolute Zero, by the way. <laughs> what, what were you guys thinking? I can't figure that out. I know that the two module components are key to making him work somehow, but I, I can't wrap my head around that guy yet. Um, and some of the villains... I. You've you've obviously put a couple of unbeatable villains in there, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, I, I will say every villain in Sentinels of the Multiverse can be beaten by any team of any three, four, or five heroes. You pick the three heroes that are just that you're not you're not able to get them to click, and you take them against the most unbeatable villain, and that is that is a that is a, a winnable game. Um, it's going to be a harder game, obviously, right. but it's a winnable game. Um, well, and. and, and and because of the nature of it being a card game, you know, there's an element of chaos in there. The card draws, of course. So, yeah, I don't mean to say you've making a, made a broken game or anything, because I'm sure you guys have to put up with a lot of that, like, on the forums and the way that a lot of gamers talk to developers. They'll use language like, your game is broken. This isn't fair. Uh, fix this. Nerf that. Um, so I don't mean to say that, but I, I kind of feel like you, you've opted out of a set difficulty level. Mm-hmm. For better or worse, this can be a really simple, casual, friendly game, or it can be an infuriating puzzle, kind yeah. of. Uh, and that's kind of where I'm at with some of the villains, is I'm determined to figure out the best combo of heroes to beat some of these tough villains. Um, so I, I guess that's exactly as you intended, to make it friendly yeah, for more casual yeah. audiences and to have something for me to bang my head against what feels sometimes like a, a brick wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. uh, we, we, we wanted to make sure that people had a chance to play it as casually as possible. And that's one of the reasons it's also there's the advanced mode that was very important to us really. Oh, gosh. Um, I feel like I feel like I'm cheating if I'm not playing the advanced mode by the way. I like to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> like if I'm not using the advanced mode, I feel like that little snippet on the villain card is is taunting me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and there's people that are like, okay, you know, religiously we will play the advanced mode. And there's people that are like, eh, you know, I, there's tons of players who are like, oh no, we've never even cared about the advanced mode. That's not what we're here to do. And that's as far as I as far as I'm concerned, that's exactly exactly correct. Right, right. Uh, what villains or heroes gave you the the most difficulty in terms of trying to make them fit and tuning the the gameplay dynamics? Hmm. Trying, to make them, trying to make them fit. That's that's an interesting question because um, yeah, that, that it's really hard to say because uh, basically everyone's been there from the start for us. You're right. Um, um, in terms of making gameplay mechanics work. Uh, the Dream Rose one that was definitely like okay we we've got to we got to nail this 100 percent because use the premise of it right but. and it was a, it, we had to make sure that 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 absolutely fit and it didn't feel it it, it was still fun and not just terrifying um, the uh, one that I'm I'm rather proud of mechanically is the Argent Adept uh, making oh. a uh, because I, I mean I sat down to write that deck and I said okay I know that I want this deck you're gonna have um, 
you're going to have melodies and harmonies and rhythms and you're going to use you're going to use instruments which will have powers on them to activate those and now i have to make that work and not feel just awful um and i was very pleased that it worked out that way but that was one of the few ones that it was that i came to um more mechanically whereas the vast majority of them we come to i would say almost purely um thematically in that we sit down and we write a character and that is the part that adam and i are most uh, conjoined in our creative process where we will um, we'll just talk back and forth and argue and fight and Adam and I get really animated and uh, there's a lot of clash in our arguments um, which is good, it's great um, it's, it's part of having been friends for so long uh, and we'll create these characters that, that we that we care about and that we love and we want to tell their stories and then we'll kind of go our separate ways and I'll write story, story, story and Adam will do sketch, sketch, sketch and then we'll come back again and he'll be like, well, what about this? And I'll be like, what about that? And I'll tell my story and he'll show his sketch and there'll be edits back and forth uh, um, on both sides. And so then by the time it comes to, to cr crafting the deck, it's like, okay, well, we know the guy looks like this. He's carrying this kind of weapon, so we need to see that uh, in the mechanics. And his backstory it talks about this and that and the other, so we need to see that in the mechanics. And, and all of the, the mechanics are born right out of the flavor and out of the art and out of the story of these characters. And, uh, and the, I'm glad to hear you call out the Argent Adept because he's another one that I'm having a hard – I can see what you're going for there. I just have a hard time getting him going, and he almost strikes me as Sentinels of the Multiverse in – a microcosm. There's sure. this sense that you're creating your own sets of powers uh, mm -hmm. using the instruments and the, the melody and the harmony and the rhythm combos. Uh, and it, it just it, it reminds me of how, on a larger scale, you match a set of heroes against the villain the environment deck. Uh, so I really like what you did with him. But he's another one that I... I just feel like I can't quite... He's too advanced for me at this point. <laughs> sure. And, I mean, the the thing that I would suggest with um, both the Argent Adept and with Absolute Zero is, um, and I'm sure you have, is to, to read through the deck and get a feel for what's going on in the deck. Um, and, like, if you, play, you can certainly... I always like playing a character without necessarily... Uh, in, in any game, without necessarily like reading through an entire deck and knowing everything first. But if you're really hitting your head, hitting a wall with the character, you know, read through their deck... Figure out what some of the some of the combos are. Um, with absolute zero, like you said, he depends on his two modules. But really, as long as he's got the one out that turns the fire into damage mm -hmm. that he outputs, now he's an offensive character. And as long as he's got the one that he's got that turns the cold into healing, now he's a, a tank character. And you can play him either of the two ways. You don't need both. Mm -hmm. uh, but. And with Absolute Zero, I think something that clicked for me is uh, having him in a team with Ra, just trying a solo sure. game, uh, and thinking, oh, look at what crazy I, things I can do now. Look at what these guys probably wanted me to discover at some point. Like right. like Ra and Absolute Zero on a team, uh, it's the stuff that any great mashup comic book would be made of, I feel. Right. They're not necessarily friends, but they work well together. <laughs> well put, sure. Uh, so... Um, uh, as far as the villains, uh, tell me a story about getting mm -hmm. one of the villains to work. Sure, uh, yeah. Um, uh, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll start from the, with the, the very beginning with Baron Blade. Uh, when we started writing the game, we were like, okay, we've got this flagship hero legacy and his flagship team, the Freedom Five, and they need a villain that is just as, as iconic as they are. And we, we started writing Baron Blade. We're like, well, he needs to have a doomsday device. And so we had to have this countdown thing that was built in that as he goes through his deck, his, his his trash, his discard pile that he's creating, um, is a countdown towards imminent destruction. And and then and then giving the story, okay, well, but when you stop that, that's not all. He's gonna he's coming at you with more, and he's doing more exciting things. And that's that's a um, 
a big part of each of the villains is making a unique flip mechanic that at some point in the game, for some reason, the villain flips from one side of his character card to the other. And what that flip mechanic, how that flip mechanic integrates with the rest of the deck and how that flip mechanic makes that villain stand out. Every villain has a different flip mechanic, and that is really important to us. So in terms of like what we said with all of the villains being with us from the start, that's absolutely true. Um, but the mechanics and the flip mechanics and the, the, the combos that build in within the decks, those are the parts that really we get down to the nitty-gritty. And those are the parts I certainly agonize more over the flip mechanics for each villain um, than I do anything else. Some of them come very naturally. Um, some of them are very obvious. Um, a, a lot of them, they start, I'll start with the flip mechanics. Like, okay, I want to write a, a deck around this flip mechanic, so let's go with that. Um, whereas others, they, I will write the deck and they'll be going and they'll be pretty much acting without that at all. It's like, okay, well, how, where does that come in now? That's a very important part here. We have to make sure that it exists. So, um, those, those are definitely there. Um, Christopher, they remind me in a way of, uh, each one is like a two act play almost. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I mean, some of them flip back and forth and back and forth. Uh, I mean, Omnitron obviously flips every turn. Yeah. Matrix going to flip every time she decks herself. Things like that, um, but but yeah, no, it's, it's definitely you're seeing a different stage. It's not just a different mechanical thing, but a different part of the story of this character. They look different, they behave different, their deck corresponds with what's going on in their character card differently, and, and that's that, that dichotomy of each villain is very important to us because any full fleshed character is going to have multiple parts to them, and that and the the flip mechanic was our way of not just saying mechanically something different is happening, which is good in any game, but also story wise, there's more being told here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of a specific story. I mean, the, right, right now, the reason that we're kind of coming up against a wall and not being able to, to give a real good specific tale is because we've been working a lot on Vengeance, our upcoming expansion that'll be out early next year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very different way of playing the game. It is the, There's uh, five heroes that come with the game in two environments, and those are standard hero environment setups that you're used to. Uh, but the villains. By the way, are, have you have you announced any of them? Like, what can you say about as far as the names of heroes or villains? Has, has any of that been announced? Is that any? Yeah, we've announced all of the heroes on our website. We've actually put up all the bios, and you can go and read about all of the bios um, at sentinelsthemultiverse.com. There's a link that says multiverse, and you can go and we actually put up all the hero bios. Okay. And with, all the villain bios were on our Kickstarter. Yeah. Also on and, our Shutter Timelines Kickstarter. Right. And on the next in the next couple of weeks here, we'll be putting up all the villain bios and all the and the both the uh, all the information about the environment. Um, so that's all pretty close to public knowledge. It's all making its way out there. Uh, people that have been aggressively stalking the website have, have been able to, to get a, a good amount of information out of it. Um, but the, the villains work so differently. Um, it's, it's a villain team that you, as a team of heroes, you fight a team of villains that kind of meets you head to head instead of a group of heroes against a, a more central deck. And um, and so that's that has been a, a big mechanical struggle, not in a down way, not in a way like we can't get it work. No, we definitely it was working the way we wanted it to, but it was such a different way to work on a game that we knew inside and outside that um, it was it was very fun. Uh, very Christopher, it almost sounds a bit like uh, here's another villain that I can't quite wrap my head around. Uh, and I haven't tried against these guys yet, but the Aeneid is a group of villains who come out from under this shrine, mm-hmm. uh, and there is almost this sense of squaring off, like there's several of them arrayed against the team. Uh, you're yeah. playing with that kind of concept with Vengeance? It was similar to that. It's definitely different, but the Aeneid was definitely the way that we said, okay, is there even a chance that people want to try this? Like, we, um, we uh, that deck was kind of... Um, I, 
I, I really like the Indian deck, um, and the way that it plays is very cool and fun. And um, and but the but the Vengeance setup is very different from yeah, that. Yeah, it's much much bigger. Um, it, it's yeah. Whereas a Sentinels and Multiverse game is a half an hour to an hour sort of game. A Vengeance game is more like an hour to an hour and a half. It's not some. It's not like a game of of uh, diplomacy or something where you're going to spend all day on it, but it still is a it is a, a heftier game, a, a more intensive game. It's, it's so it sort sounds of more of an event. Yeah. Okay, it sounds like you're giving guys like me who are sort of becoming more advanced players something to really to chew on for a little bit longer, almost. Right. Yeah. yeah. Vengeance is, should not be your first. If you've never played Sentinels of the Multiverse, your intro to it shouldn't be Vengeance. It should be you know something from the core game. You pick up Enhanced Edition and you play through the villains there. But once you've been around Sentinels of the Multiverse for a bit and you're like, man, I'm getting these things down. The Ennead are are you know are scrubbing my front porch for me because I've got him on a leash and the, the matriarch and the chairman can't give me any trouble anymore. Um, <laughs> you're, you're ready to try some vengeance, not because it's that much harder, but because it's more intense. It's a, it's a different sort of, like Adam said, it's an event. Uh, there's, there's right. more going on. Um, and the, uh, the, the complexity and the difficulty of vengeance um, varies a good amount due to what team you pull up and what part of the vengeance team you fight against. But uh, too much more than that would be telling. So. Well, uh, and, uh, Christopher, I feel like you're antagonizing me because you just mentioned <laughs> the matriarch and the chairman, and yeah. I can't find a copy of Rook City anywhere. Oh, uh, oh, what oh. what happened with that, and what are you guys doing to address it for guys sure. like me who we want to be completely? We printed a ton of Rook City, uh, <laughs> and we sold it all, and it's mm-hmm. all gone. And um, we are in the process of reprinting Rook City and Infernal Relics right now, and uh, we're actually doing a box combined set of Rook City and Infernal Relics. Uh, that will be out by the end of the year, and we'll have it up on our website then. Um, and it was it, we did a much larger initial print run of Rook City than we were intending, um, because the Kickstarter, the first Kickstarter we did, uh, we didn't actually do the original game through Kickstarter. We did the original game through a more traditional method, our, using, doing it ourselves. Right. And um, but then our first Kickstarter was for that first expansion, and that did well enough that we're like, okay, let's just do a bigger print run, let's get a lot of them going, and we did. And they've been they've lasted a while, but they ran out earlier this year, and so we're out of stock. But they will be back in stock within a month or two. Great. So. I certainly look forward to that. Uh, and then finally, I want both of you guys, I know this might be a difficult situation, picking your, your the favorite amongst all of your children, uh-huh. so to speak, here. Yeah. But I'm, I'm going to demand that each of you picks, from now on, for instance, something happens. Let's say the Grand Warlord Voss descends on the Earth, and he dictates that you can only play one hero from now on. Uh, what do you each pick? Christopher and Adam, what, what do you go for? Christopher, one oh, hero cool. from now on, you can't play anyone else. Who are you going to single out? I'm going to fight boss. What I'm going to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, but he... <laughs> I, know, I know his weaknesses. <laughs> that's true. Uh, but until he's defeated, uh, you're only going to get one hero. I'm, I'm willing to play your game. Oh, okay. gosh. Only one hero. Um... You know, I don't know. I go on different kicks, so it's like you know, depending on the time of day. Right. Even like, yeah. Cause yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I have been on a big time Mister Fixer kick mm-hmm. lately. So. Oh, uh, you jerk! Once again, you're calling one out from the Brook City expansion. And I have no idea what he does. Yeah, uh, Adam, ex- cool. explain Mister Fixer to me. What What does uh, he so do? He's got. Um, he's a martial arts mechanic. Um, he is uh, sort of an old salt of the earth guy that. Um, that has a bunch of mechanics tools that he uses as weapons, and he has different martial arts styles. Um, and you only have one of each of those in play, but you sort of switch them out, change your style, change your weapon, depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. 
So he has a very minimal setup required, um, and he's a, it's a very like, sort of zen way of playing. Um, but uh, but he has pretty much an answer for every situation. He's kind of a fixer. So yep, great. Okay, good. Um, so Christopher, hopefully your choice will be one that I'm familiar with. <laughs> um, I, you know it. Since you said that, I feel like being a jerk and naming a hero from an expansion that's not going to be... Look, if you, if you guys... Oh, well, if you guys' key is to get me uh, interested in getting Rook City and Vengeance, your job is already... You've already accomplished that, by golly. <laughs> so I'm, you know, I'm definitely on board for those. Oh, yeah, that's a really... Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. No, I would... Uh, again, like Adam says, we get on kicks. And right now, Adam's on a Mr. Fixer kick, and I am on an Argent Adam kick. Um, that will... Just, I, that'll actually definitely change in the next few weeks but for the, for the last month or so we've been actually it's been like a couple months we've both been just playing those characters and trying to trying to do different things um which is funny for us because like we know how those characters work inside and outside but we still we still do we still get in plays like you know what i just want to play this character over and over and over again and just kind of kind of roll around in the goodness that we've we've built up there yeah. and so yeah i would say that i would be willing to play the Arch and adept until i was able to defeat Voss and go back to my freewheeling lifestyle of playing somebody different every time. <laughs> uh, I can imagine that with uh, Argent Adept, it must be uniquely gratifying when you get it running smoothly, like in a way that an easier deck like the Wraith might not be. Like the Wraith is awesome to just play her and have this wealth of equipment and use her trust funds, but it seems like it's a lot more work and it's more gratifying with the more complex decks that maybe it might be hard to go back to something easy like the Wraith. Uh, I think. Yeah, so. uh, the, the Argent Adept's fun um, for being able to kind of conduct the orchestra of the table, uh, yep. which is exactly what he was meant to do. Uh, and I think I really like playing him as, uh, with new people or with advanced people or anything in between because he echoes the feeling of that we had of creating the game. And like you said, a kind of a meta-Sentinels experience of... He never really does anything himself, but when he gets going, he's just making everybody do lots of extra things. Right, uh, right. And and that's that's as as a creator, that is very fun to see. I, the thing I want to see is the people at the table, table having as much fun as possible. And he's definitely a fun multiplier for everyone else. Um, and the right kind of player has to play him. So right. Well, uh, Christopher Bedell, Adam Ribataro, thank you guys so much for hanging out with me today, and I, I wish you guys the best of luck uh, with the Vengeance add-on. Uh, hurry up, I guess is what I have to say about that. <laughs> oh, we are, we are moving full steam ahead. Actually, while we've been on this uh, call, Adam and I have been looking over some proofs for the environments and uh, getting ready to, to post those up to, uh, to get, get them headed to the printer. So, Excellent. Uh, and, and you'll be and, and you'll be revealing more information. You said at uh, at the the website is it sentinelsthemultiverse.com? Sentinelsthemultiverse.com is your nexus for everything Sentinels the Multiverse related. Uh, whereas greaterthangames.com is where you're going to find information about what we're doing as a company and uh, where our super awesome active forum community and stuff like that is. So both of those places are great places to go for information. Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen, very much, and and, uh, and uh, we look forward to seeing what what uh, the new stuff looks like. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And there you have it. That has been our podcast on uh, characters as cards. Scott, have we convinced you to maybe consider possibly looking into the option of perhaps buying Sentinels of the Multiverse? Yeah, I'll definitely look into it. I love games like this. This sounds right up my alley. I, I don't know how it slipped through my radar. This, but the problem is nowadays there's just a lot 
of genuinely interesting board games and the just free to play thing, iPad games. There's so much that it's just it's just a huge river of never ending awesome stuff if you're a gamer. I think one of the reasons that because I'm I'm in the same boat as you, Scott. You know, Sentinels has been out for over a year, and I didn't know anything about it. Uh, I, I wonder how much the fact you know they're a small company. It's, it's basically just three guys in, in St. Louis, I believe, uh, and they don't have that license. You know, they don't have a big publisher, and they don't have a sexy DC or, or Marvel license. Um, so yeah, uh, but they're 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 doing very well for themselves. They're uh, going to be as as we just heard releasing Vengeance early next year, and there will be a re-release so that guys like me can finally get a copy of Rook City uh, in December. Oh, the rat's a tough one. Uh, quit talking about it. I can't believe in those guys picked <laughs> characters from uh, Rook City that I can't even play as their favorites. Uh, and, and what they do in the second edition when you buy it. They have a great layout in the box, and they're, they're dividers for the cards, so you can easily find them. They helpfully include dividers for the add-ons that you may not have bought. So you can clearly see the cool artwork and the names of the heroes, villains, and environments that whoops, you can't play with until you buy the rest of the add-ons. So here I am. I have no Rook City, but by golly, I've got the dividers for them uh, here <laughs> in my box. Yeah. I, I, one of the other villains I was going to mention, actually, that has been my favorite so far is a Rook City villain. But, but uh, to tag on to what you were just saying there, and Scott, is you're right. There, there is a river of games. It, is, it really does feel like this revolution. But that being said, the two that we've just hit on here, I feel like just stands so far outside of, of a lot of competition. It's just amazing. And even if you do decide to pick up one of these, I strongly recommend don't go for like your, your lowest buy-in. You get so much more out of Sentinels the more you have because it just adds more and more variables to it. You know, sure. it's all kinds of crazy combinations. And the same thing with Pathfinder. The, the, the deeper you go means the longer you can have of this this kind of story arc with character building and, and loot building. That uh, I, these games are great. I mean, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're top of the collection. I think, as I said earlier, or, or even before this podcast, is, is they're 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 right up there for my games of the year. And they're not games I even was paying attention to until they were right in front of me. So that's the best kind. Yep. Oh yeah, <laughs> the wait wasn't tough. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we thank everyone for listening. That's been uh, this week's Games Podcast. I uh, appreciate you uh, joining us and, uh, and all of our guests. Uh, I am Tom Chick. I've been joined by Rob Harvey and Scott Lufkin. And uh, we will see everyone here next week. In the meantime, please follow us on Twitter at, at QT3. Uh, like us on Facebook. We love it when you do that. Um, and be sure to check out the forums at quarter2three.com. And we'll see everyone here. You do recognize this as the Star Wars theme, right? No, no, this is the Star Trek. I, I can see it clearly. This is when the Star Trek starts up, and they end up, you know, shooting the uh, the photon torpedoes at the Death Star. I remember this. No, no, no. This is the call from uh, every tenth minute in the uh, in the last the the, the the last Superman movie. Oh. Did they actually use this in that, Scott? You're kidding. No, me. wait, not the last one. Most of them, Brandon Ralph. Brandon Ralph was in the one, right? Uh, with the, the penultimate Superman movie, the, the, yeah, the penultimate, the yeah, yeah, right. and they play. And I was so excited they played this music until they played it like every ten minutes. <laughs> well, you, you got to get what you can out of these John Williams soundtracks. Yeah.
But I, I suppose. I get it every 10 minutes as being reiterated to me by a 7-year-old, because he's been really into DC and the Superman movies uh, lately, so I, I, I get to hear it in the uh, the kid version all the time. <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like he's betraying Sentinels of the Multiverse now. Megalopolis. Oh, God. There you go. See, <laughs> Scott can get it. Why can't you, Rob? Uh, I'm a terrible man. I'm going to go play Sentinels. <laughs>